Saturday, March 24th, 1984. Shermer High School, Shermer, Illinois, 60062. Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. What we did was wrong, but we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. What do you care? You see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, with the most convenient definitions. You see us as a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. Correct? That's the way we saw each other at 7 o'clock this morning. We were brainwashed. Guys, we have missed you so much. It feels like it has been a year since Misa and I have been able to record. No, <laughs> I was just telling Frankie like yesterday, like, dude, I missed the podcast. <laughs> yes. So let's just back up and talk a little bit about what's been going on. Um, well, I've been sick off and on for quite some time. Um, just really congested, not able to talk. I lost my voice again. And um, Misa can't be around me when I'm sick. So there's a lot that, yeah, lupus, you know, nothing serious. Um, So that paused our um, podcast for a little bit. And then we were, as everyone else in the world, struck with the coronavirus pandemic. And so Misa and I are actually, for the first time ever, recording remotely, but we had to because if you don't know what movie we're already doing, it is The Breakfast Club. <laughs> Insert all the applause, all the bows. We love this movie. Yeah, all the trumpets, everything. This movie is just the ultimate teen classic movie. John Hughes directed and wrote and did a phenomenal job of capturing life as a teenager in high school. Yeah, definitely. And and one of the things that I, I mean, granted, I'm not terribly familiar with a lot of the teen movies from the 80s, but uh, them compared to John Hughes, it's like John Hughes's work was always a lot more personable. Um, everything else was kind of uh, kind of raunchy, kind of in your face. Like the the teenagers didn't really seem like actual human beings. They seemed like caricatures. Mm-hmm. They were kind of over the top. But like John Hughes took people and like humanized them, and he, uh, more, more importantly than all, he humanized teenagers. Yes, who you know who when they saw this movie impacted them in such a way because there's so much about insecurity and self-identity and parents and these are some of the themes that like he was really really good about projecting on screen yeah and also capturing just that kind of um the difference you go through like when you're a teen and you know you do feel alone and you're going through a lot because of school and hormones and everything else and then it is almost like your parents have forgotten that stage because it is such a horrible time for most of us that we just kind of want to brush past it like I don't care to live a lot of the times that I had in high school there were some of the best years of my life but some of the worst also and we didn't even get to go to the same high school so (laughs) no Misa and I went to the same middle school but then in our district um you were drawn in a lottery system 
And then yeah. you actually applied for the smart school. I right? did. I was in the smart school. Yes. The, <laughs> the college prep school, which in reality, everyone thought was like easy. And so a lot of people actually drop out after their freshman year. My graduating class was like 135. That's so, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I went to a really small that's March school, if you will. <laughs> um, so yeah, guys. So um, we hope everyone's doing well during this quarantining. Mm-hmm. I was back and forth, back and forth, like with myself. Like, should I leave the house to record this podcast? Should I take the risk <laughs> and go to Frankie's and just do the normal routine? But there were multiple factors that led to what we're doing now, which is a, my health because lupus equals in like immunocompromised, Mm -hmm. which if you've been watching the news, um, makes me like a higher risk than some. A much Um, higher risk. And, uh, so I, and then every day the news just kept getting worse. The news just kept getting worse and the cases keep going up and up. It's scary. I'm just like, it is kind of scary. And I'm waiting for like, Okay, well, after they recover, are they going to be zombies? Like, is this it? Is this it? Like, I know Misa and I are, like, comparing this to what movie? <laughs> All the – Contagion, Zombieland. Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. Like, yes. L.A. right now looks exactly like it did in Zombieland, which is so creepy. What was I just saying a couple months ago? How did they empty out those streets? That's now I know. know. The virus. <laughs> That's exactly how. It's crazy. I mean, people are fighting over toilet paper and water and all kinds of stuff. And um, Lisa and I actually wanted to um, dedicate this podcast in particular, because we do care about what's going on in the world, to some um, local mom and shop pops or small shops, if you will, just because we know that everyone is hurting right now. Um, Lisa and I are both, you know, have things that have been cut from us from our budget due to the economy. And so our heart reaches out to those small businesses. And we wanted to dedicate this podcast to a couple of those that we are going to mention and then tag in the, um, I'm sorry, blog. Yeah. We can tag on the blog. We'll tag on the Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want to go first? Sure. Okay. So one of mine is, um, actually a bar that Misa and I went to, um, for, Bob's Burgers Burgers, and that is the Pearl Bar. They are located off of Washington, and they actually have shut down for right now just because, you know, all bars are shut down. Um, But they put all of their bartenders up on Venmo, and if you want to just drop some money to the bartenders because that's how they make their money. And their bartenders are amazing. When Misa and I went, they were so sweet. They were all dressed up in character. They were just pleasant and exciting to be around. And so if you guys would love to promote them. We would love that. And they host some really great nights, guys. Once we get out of all this quarantine funk, I really hope you will um, reach out to the Pearl Bar. It's amazing. Whether you're gay or not, um, it's always fun. Um, My second place is Sinful Bakery, which is my favorite vegan and gluten-free place to eat. I stock them at all of their um, marketplaces that they go to, and they officially have a storefront up now. They are doing drive-by meals, of course, and they have the most amazing cinnamon rolls ever. Oh, yeah. 
forever. I <laughs> love them. So, and I can vouch that was definitely a good cinnamon roll. Yes. And then um, my third one is just going to be the Tomball Market in general. They're doing an online shopping and they have the best little macaroon place ever within the Tomball Market. She does not have a storefront. She is strictly out of her house and then at the Tomball Market. Um, and I'm going to have Misa tag her on the Instagram and the podcast. She makes little character macaroons macarons. Oh, that's so cute. Um, She's made Baby Yoda, Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore, characters from um, different shows like Mickey and Minnie Mouse, of course, classics, and she has amazing flavors. So those are my three for this week. And we really love you guys supporting those small shops. Misa and I both have our own kind of business on the side. And so it means a lot to us. Awesome. Yes. um, Love. I love... Two of the ones that you've mentioned, of course, um, Pearl Bar and Sinful Bakery are legit. Um, that was a great collaborative effort that they had for the Bob's Burgers vegan pop-up. Um, so I hope that when things kind of return to normal, they can do something a lot like that again. Yes. <laughs> um, so as far as um, some of the small businesses that I wanted to bring attention to, um, these are some of the places that like I frequent all the time that I love to go to that, well... I loved to go to up until this point, <laughs> up until I was allowed to go. Um, first, I have to mention Empire Cafe in Montrose. I love Empire Cafe. They are one of the reasons why I bother to get up early just to catch their breakfast before it's over. Um, right now, they're actually having like these really good specials. Like um, They have amazing cake. So they're offering like a free slice of cake with like a to-go order or like um, they also have like a lunch pack right now for like 40 bucks and you get like two soups, two sandwiches, an appetizer, dozen cookies, a slice of cake. Like, a Oh, wow. Of That's good. Yeah. So they're doing, uh, of course, they're obviously doing takeout, uh, carryout delivery stuff right now because mm-hmm. that's all that is permitted. Another business I wanted to mention was Campesino Coffee House, which is also in the Montrose area. Um, this is a beautiful little cafe. It's kind of Spanish themed. They always have like a classic movie playing on the TV and they're just, they're so cozy and cute. Um, not only are they offering like coffee, beverages, and some of their food items, but also they are offering their beautiful space to videographers and photographers right now. So if if a photographer or videographer, what have you, wants to do some kind of shoot or session, uh, Campesino is a beautiful setting. I I was going to ask them like, oh, how much will you charge me to go take selfies? Um, (laughs) Like it's such a cute place. And I definitely think that, um, oh, and of course the proceeds would go toward the business and the employees. So um, that would definitely help out and it would look good in your portfolio, guys. So if you're a creative definitely look them up. Um, And then another one would have to be um, Vida Antigua, which is this really adorable, like, vintage thrift shop, lots of vintage clothes, some vintage, like, accessories, items, and stuff like that. They're located in the Heights. Um, Really, really cute stuff. Um, A lot of it's vintage. A lot of it's, like, you can tell that it's got like stories to it and stuff. Ooh. Um, and and the girl who runs it is a, a girl named Luce, who's really sweet. She's a friend of a friend. She works really hard. She does pop-up shops all over. Um, and if we can help her out, then I think we should definitely look her up and see what 
see what goodies she has these days. <laughs> is she doing anything online? Because, um, well, Misa knows, but you guys, I love thrifting. I love thrift shops. I love antique shops. So that's like totally on my alley. For those of us who obviously we can't go to her store right now, can we shop online or? Um... She, what, what it is is like, it's a really, really tiny store. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what she's doing right now, uh, last I checked at least, um, she's going by appointment. Okay, smart. Because she also likes to set appointments on a regular basis anyway when there isn't a quarantine because she likes you to have a personal shopper experience. Like oh, That's amazing. Um, and so it, I think it just, it just kind of goes already with her rapport that like she wants to just make appointments for people. Mm-hmm. And now just because she has to limit, I guess, the amount of clients that come in on a daily now more than ever, it's um, she prefers that you let her know that you want to come in and let her know when, and then she can kind of make the arrangements for you. So that's amazing. I love yeah. it. Well, Definitely. once the quarantine is over, I can't wait to hit up that place, Nisa, together. Oh, yeah. They have, they have some really cute cameras and typewriters, too. Oh, yay. I love it. So we'll, see. we'll see. Awesome. Um, anyway, guys, so um, feel free to check out those uh, small businesses that we've mentioned. Uh, feel free. Please, please. We absolutely encourage you to support the small businesses that you know and love as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think we should talk about the movie. Yeah. Now the moment we've all been waiting for, (laughs) at least Um, Lisa and I have. (laughs) Um, and then guys, um, apologies in advance. If our audio is a little weird, we are recording remote. We've never done this before. Um, I mean, I think we sound okay, but yeah, we'll see you on the final draft. And you know what? Uh, just we really appreciate your support, even if it doesn't sound the greatest. And just now, we're just trying to not disappear in all of the you know quarantine corona madness, and we're still going to be going as strong as we can during this time. Let's fucking talk about the Breakfast Club <laughs> from 1985, directed by none other than the legendary. John Hughes. Is this your favorite John Hughes film? It is. It is. Um, and fun fact, it's also, I'm just going to go ahead and jump into a fun fact, I guess. It's actually rated um, the top John Hughes movie out of all of the movies that he's directed. Um, yeah. And surprisingly, the first couple, like three, are not necessarily the teen movies. But yeah, Breakfast Club um, was the top you know, rated amongst not just teens and other movie critics, but Amongst everyone, we love The Breakfast Club. <laughs> you and I are theater nerds, so we, of course, appreciate the fact that, like, this is very much like a play. Yes. This is an ensemble. Mm-hmm. Um, and since the release of this movie, it's been adapted as a play. Like, they do it in high school now? I they thought. do, yeah. And actually, that's what I love so much about this, like, going back and looking at all the research. Like, the reason I think you and I do love it so much is John Hughes actually had them rehearse it as a play for several weeks, you know. And um, a lot of it was improv um, there were things that he told the cast to like, you know, if you feel that that's your backstory or that's your line, like, go for it and we'll see if it works. And you and I know very much that that's a part of theater. And I, I love that he trusted the characters to do that. It just, it makes it kind of a one of a kind experience because there are directors who do not allow improvisations, who do not allow you to take the lines and change it. Like if that's how it's written, that's how you're going to say it. John Hughes was not like that. And it just, it makes the movie so much more real to me. Mm-hmm. 
And on top of that, like with the way he was kind of a little more flexible with the script, like he had at least five or six different versions and he let them read all of them. Like he, he gave the cast all of his scripts and they just kind of cut and pasted what they liked and what they thought worked. And so it really was like an ensemble collaborative effort. And I think that's why it works so well. Because it wasn't just one guy telling everybody what to do, but it was this guy who related to all these people and they were kind of going about it all together. So that's, I think that's what makes the movie like so special. That's where the heart of it is really. Um, You know, I don't want to say a movie is only as good as its director because some good directors have done shitty movies. That's true. But this is a really good example of like just how, um, just how well a movie can flourish with the right nurture from the right person. Absolutely. And, you know, he wrote, produced, and directed the movie. And this was supposed to be his first movie, his directorial debut. Um, That is not how it went. But I think he learned a lot from the first movie, and this was his second one. And I think it just – this movie is untouchable, almost. Honestly, I kind of prefer – I know that 16 Candles ended up being the first one. Yeah. Uh, because uh, they thought that it was going to be more marketable at the time and they didn't yeah. gamble it on, on Breakfast Club. But um, I kind of prefer, because like if I imagine it switched, then you have to imagine Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall as like a slightly younger version of themselves in in the Breakfast Club. That's true. And I just, not that not that a year or two's difference really would, would be that glaring of a, of a change, but it, I feel like it would have been a different stage in their lives. Um, the, the acting that they did in 16 Candles together compared to what they did in Breakfast Club was so different, you know? No, you're right. Um, you're right. So I feel like maybe uh, it worked out that way, uh, like one of those it was meant to be kind of things, mm-hmm. because maybe some of them needed to mature a year or two before they could be in a movie like The Breakfast Club. Um, Molly Ringwald in 16 Candles, of course, amazing, iconic, but, um, six, like 15 year old turning 16 year old Molly Ringwald as Claire, mm, she'd come off, I don't know, maybe a little more whiny, a little more babyish, yeah. uh, childish, maybe. I'm not sure how she would have played it. Um, but a different dynamic but, for sure, because you're right. Them pulling from their own experience is what made the movie, what made the characters. Um, and so you're right. Given that extra little bit of time um, to mature and to be a little bit older, I think you're absolutely right. And especially for all of those other people too. I mean, Emilio Estevez, Judd Nelson, Ali Sheedy. <laughs> the Mighty Duck guys. Yeah. I was like, Emilio! <laughs> and he turned around. And he <laughs> another one of my favorite movies (laughs) for those of you who don't know what we're quoting night at the rock Rock (laughs) i told myself that i would say the line (laughs) i've been waiting for weeks me and my sister Uh, will randomly start shouting emilio at target and and things because one of our movies together I love it. It's a classic. That is hilarious. It is a classic. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, 
for those of you, of course, I mean, I think everyone's pretty familiar with John Hughes, but he's also known for directing, like we said, 16 Candles, Weird Science, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's also written the screenplays for Pretty in Pink, National Lampoon's Vacation, which is another one of my personal favorites that I hold very close to me, and of course, Home Alone. And Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was yeah, another one of him. His, uh, I've actually, ugh, I'm a bad person. I've never seen any of his, like, John Candy, Steve Martin films. Okay. But I know he did, he did, um, and then the other, Uncle Buck, Buck. who's really known for that one, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, those are, like, two of his top. Yeah. That, uh, like, that weren't to us. Yeah. No, yeah, not to us, but, like, I guess in general, mm-hmm. or, uh, as far as Hollywood goes, um, those are really well-renowned, I guess, because they're also very iconic cast members. And speaking of iconic cast members, <laughs> of course, everybody knows we have Molly Ringwald playing Claire, Emilio Estevez playing Andrew, Anthony Michael Hall playing Brian, Ali Sheedy playing Allison, Judd Nelson as John Bender, and Paul Gleason as Richard Vernon. Um, so I totally, I have to post a picture of you in your Halloween costume. You know oh, that, right? yes. Okay. So my school had actually, it was the 80th day of school. And so we had to dress up as 80s characters. And who did I dress up as? I love that. Bender. Of John Bender. She looked so cute, guys. Um, I remember, okay, you sent me, the picture you sent me is like a cropped version of your group photo, but I know you sent me a mirror picture of you. I did, and I can't find it. I think if you have it on your end, that would be great. For whatever reason, I can't find it. I have to look through my photos again. I was like going through and I was like, oh, I need Misa to post this. Um, But I I also have one where I'm like holding my fist up. So I'm going to have to really search for them. This was one of my like, if you don't know who I am, we can't be friends. <laughs> Immediately just cut people off. After. Yeah. Did like, everyone recognize you? Um, there was one person who didn't, and we are not friends. <laughs> Legit? <laughs> I stand by my wow. word. You're a cutthroat. Okay, then. Um, yes. So, oh, my gosh, she looked so cute, guys. She had, like, the red plaid with the jean jacket. She had the boots with the bandana, the fucking sunglasses. Yeah. Everything I, I tried. Like, oh, my God, the criminal. She looked so cute. I'm going to put it on the blog. That's so funny. So, but, like, growing up in high school, Amisa, because I know we both saw this when we were, like, well, I saw it in middle school for my very first time. Um, and I know that my character, I guess I related to, kind of changed through some of my years. Okay. Um, was that the same thing? Okay, so with me, I also saw it in middle school. So I think I saw it maybe maybe like a year or two before I met you. Yeah, um, that would make sense. Okay, because I know by the time I met you, we were already like vibing off yeah. of it. Um, but uh, for me, I I wasn't really sure. I'm not really sure if I necessarily related to her, but I know I loved Allison the most. Which I guess, if you know me personally, should not come as a fucking surprise. <laughs> um, but I mean, I remember, I do have a very fond memory of the first time I watched it. I remember it was like a weekend and I was in middle school and I had gotten like, I guess I'd gotten like a cold or I was like in bed sick or something like that. And I woke up and I was home alone and my sister showed up and she was like, hey. And like she wanted to cheer me up and make me feel better. So she, at the time, Blockbuster was a thing. So she rented the Breakfast Club VHS for me and brought me like, a chicken sandwich from Wendy's like and so that I sat and ate Wendy's and watched Breakfast Club and oh now God, whenever I, I watch Breakfast Club I just want chicken sandwiches <laughs> anyway um but that's like and that so that's 
it was so it was a it was a weekend home and I was sick and it was like my comfort movie and then it just became more than that. Um, but I know that when I met you, you were like you related really closely to Bender. Yes. Um, and I do feel like I was kind of a mix. Um, I do feel like I was a mix of Bender and Allison. And then when we kind of shifted and I went to the smart school, I felt like I identified a little bit with Brian just because of the pressures that he felt from getting good grades and things like that, especially, you know, having a teacher as a mom, um, and all the pressure from my family. So I do feel kind of a mix between Bender and Allison and Brian. I never really was a princess, unless I forgot my sprinkles on my milkshake. Misa. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be a bitch. <laughs> oh, you guys don't know the story. <laughs> guys, we were at Chili's one time, right? <laughs> and like Frankie orders this like picture perfect milkshake off the menu with like a it's got a real big picture with lots of sprinkles on top. And she orders this milkshake. And then the waitress comes and like there's no sprinkles and like Frankie's on the phone with whoever I guess her mom or dad or something and it was like and like the waitress like stops by and drops off the milkshake and even though Frankie's on the phone Frankie like shouts the wait where's my sprinkles (laughs) and then the waitress is like oh oh I'm sorry and then like like you didn't say anything else because you were back on the phone (laughs) she comes back with fucking sprinkles a thing of sprinkles (laughs) Like, like she gave you more sprinkles with your milkshake and like she and like you were and you're like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be a bitch. <laughs> I just wanted it to look like the picture. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure the sprinkles were the selling point. The sprinkles anyway, made it. That happened, oh my god, like twelve years ago. <laughs> Forever ago. But Forever. it's still one of the greatest stories ever. Still hilarious. Yeah. Anyway, guys. So um, yeah, I never princess and I was never an athlete, even though I played softball and I did volleyball for a year and I was on swim team. Never an athlete. Gotcha. Yeah, I um I remember when I when I first watched it and even my sisters told me that they like Allison reminded them of you. And it you you did remind me of Allison in some ways, but then you you were like Bender rebellious in some ways and an asshole yeah. and fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I have pictures where you kind of look like Allison. Don't make me dig them up. Uh, has all the pictures. <laughs> no, I will agree. Like when I'm watching her, when she has her hair kind of down when she's first sitting, there. So many moments where I'm like, oh my God, I really am Allison. Um, because, you know, growing up, I mean, I know you and I love this movie. One of our other friends, Ashley, liked this movie too. And we kind of all were like, oh, well, who are you? Who are you? Because I do feel like when you're at that age, you do kind of fit, kind of make yourself fit into one character. And that's why I really wanted to say, like, I feel like I was a mix. And there were moments where I was more Allison or I was more Bender. It depended on how rebellious I wanted to be that day. Um, and like I said, I, there were times where I was more Brian, where, like, no, I'm not doing anything. I have to study. I have to focus, things like that. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, in my opinion, John Hughes did do this movie where the characters were kind of very specific, like the princess, the basket case, because that's, we're so quick to just, you know, categorize who we are and we're so much more than just one type. 
And reading more about why John wrote this, he did say that. Like there were moments where he actually did relate more to the athlete or the criminal, like depending on age, to Brian as he got older. And that's what really kind of drove him writing this movie because of his own experiences. So Right. Right. And I mean, and just like they end up finding out at the end, they are all kind of elements of each other. Um, so in a way, when you relate to one, you're you're kind of relating to all of them because everything that they're going through and everything that they talk about through the course of this movie is so spot on with some of the things that like you still go through to this day. Um, I think it's one of those, um, I think this is one of those universal movies where like at any age you can watch it and relate to it. At any age you can watch it and it will evoke some kind of emotion from you. Um, maybe, you know, even as far as saying like maybe these are stages in your life. Maybe you grew up as a basket case, you became a criminal and then you became a brain and eventually a, you know, an athlete into a rich princess kind of shit. Like, you know, like maybe it works that way too. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I think it's, this is, that's why, that's what makes this movie so beloved Definitely. by so many people, um, is that there's, there's something for everyone. And, and it's like, I saw in like articles and interviews, like people, some people don't even really mind that it's kind of a whitewashed movie, if you will. Um, because like you kind of relate to them anyway, you're really not even paying attention to what gender they are, what color they are, what their background is. And that's Great. really the point. That's really, that's, that's, that's one of the bigger themes behind it. Yeah. Um, so just a beautiful movie and we should just fucking get into it. Oh my it. gosh. Yes. Okay. Love strange, so we learn the dark. Think of the tender things that we were working on. Slow change. We begin the movie, of course, with a demo version of Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds. Um, we get our opening credits, we get this ensemble cast, and of course everything uh, written and directed by John Hughes. But I do want to point out some of the notable crew that do get mentioned in the beginning. Um, music by Keith Forsey, who we will talk about later. Film editing by Dee Dee Allen, who did an amazing job splicing everything together. Hours and hours and hours of reels of film, and she made a masterpiece. Um, so Dee Dee Allen, for sure. Casting by Jackie Birch. If it wasn't for Jackie Birch, we wouldn't be gushing about these five. So let's give it up for Jackie, for sure. Jackie did a great job casting. And, of course, the set director is a woman named Jennifer Polito. I can't ever get over how gorgeous the library is. So um, this, there's so many other people behind these people as well, like their teams and everyone else who worked on the film. Um, the poor script supervisor <laughs> retired after this because he was couldn't he couldn't keep up anymore. Um, but anyway, just wanted to point those out. So those are some of the names that pop up in the opening credits. And then we see after John Hughes's name um, a very lovely quote that goes. And these children that you spit on as they try to change their world are immune to your consultation. They're quite aware of what they're going through. David Bowie. Um, and then the glass shatters because it's an 80s movie. <laughs> <laughs> and we are in the front of Shermer High School. Shout out and to Shermer! Ferris Bueller. And... Um, this is when we hear Brian's voice and Brian is reading the letter that we will come to know and understand a little later in the film. Um, so as we're getting the voiceover about Brian and he's kind of explaining 
basically the exposition here. Uh, we learn from him that him and a few kids are required to stay in detention on a Saturday because they all did something wrong and that's their punishment. And as we're hearing him read the letter, we're seeing the school. It's completely empty. It's a Saturday morning. We see the empty halls. We see the empty cafeteria. <laughs> we see like someone carved into a desk. I'm eating my head. <laughs> We see a locker. It actually ends up being Brian's locker, and it's been, like, blown up somehow, uh, which, again, we'll find out later. Um, and then we see, like, the school newspaper, and we see Andy's on the on the headline, and he's on the front page. Um, we see I don't like Mondays written on the wall. Um, trophy cases, uh, the bathroom, the theater stage. There's, like, a, a notebook with a bunch of scribbles in it. Um, Saying help. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, help me, help me over and over. And it's like, this is just kind of your typical school. You just kind of, you know, it's a weekend, so no one's around. It actually is it's a little ominous, but you can tell there's a lot of, like, student body activity otherwise. Um, we also see a placard for Man of the Year, which is a, a familiar face that we'll meet later. And then um, as he's explaining the different labels that Mr. Vernon sees them as, we see like a classroom for the brain. We see the locker room for the athlete. We see the counselor's office for the basket case. We see the prom stage for the princess. And we see a locker with a little noose hanging out of it <laughs> and like a threat written in Sharpie. And that's, uh, that represents the criminal. Um, and so then we cut to outside the school and we see this nice BMW. And it's Claire, played by Molly Ringwald, of course. And she's, like, complaining to her dad that, like, oh, I can't believe I, you can't get me out of this. And, like, apparently she ditched school to go shopping. So this is why she's in detention. And so he kind of gives her her lunch bag and she goes inside. We meet Brian. And his mother is, like, scolding him because, well, we don't really know exactly what he did. But we know that she's upset. And she tells him that he needs to study while he's there. Um, so we can tell that she expects a lot of him, um, and of course he is the brain, so there is that pressure. Uh, that's when we meet Andrew, uh, who I guess we'll call Andy, and um, Andrew's dad is like, they're in a pickup truck, and his dad's just kind of yelling at him because Andy is an athlete, and he's supposed to be doing well, and he wants him to excel, but he goofed up on something, and now he's in detention, and his dad is just kind of grilling him for it because he expects excellence from his son. So Andy just kind of gets upset and gets out of the truck. And then we see Bender walking up by himself. No car, no parents. Like, <laughs> wanders in. And then, like, Allison's parents almost run him over. <laughs> um, and then Allison gets out of the car. And I guess she, like, she tries to, like, peek into her parents' window, I guess, to see if they're going to say bye or something. And they just drive away without even looking at her and without giving her any regard whatsoever. It's really sad. Yeah, and uh, so that's the opening scene of the movie, and already we kind of know a lot about what we're getting into, um, and we've met some of our core cast. During the beginning of the film, uh, we were hearing uh, a demo version of Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds. Uh, this song does play twice in the in the movie, so I'm going to save some of the info for later on in the episode. Um, but just for now, I'll cover some of the basic stuff, such as the final version of Don't You Forget About Me was featured on the Breakfast Club soundtrack, which was released on February 19th, 1985 by A&M Records. It peaked at number 17 on the U.S. Billboard 200. And this song, Don't You Forget About Me, was released as a single in the U.S. on February 20th, 1985. 
and released in the UK on April 8th. It reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100. This is a song by Scottish rock band Simple Minds, but it was written and composed by Keith Forsey and Steve Schiff, uh, guitarist and songwriter, respectively, from the Nina Hagen Band. It's best known for being featured in this film and pretty much any film or TV show that has parodied this film. Um, so um, Simple Minds at the time of the recording consisted of Jim Kerr on lead vocal, Charlie Birchill on guitar and keyboards, Nick McNeil on keyboard, and Derek Forbes on bass, John Giblin on bass, and Mel Gaynor as percussionist. Um, so we do have a few more bits and info about that song, but since it plays again later, I'm going to save some of that for the end. Um, but, um, already this is such a great opening. Um, as soon as that music hits, it, you're already just kind of hyped for this movie. Yeah. Um, this, uh, the, the beginning scene would not be the same without that underscore. I completely agree. The And like Misa said, this is the demo. So there's the music playing and it just fits in perfectly with going through the typical high school. And, you know, it does look like a very average high school, which I think is so important that they put that in there because like Misa and I have already said, John wrote this to be about any teen, whether you're a girl or a guy, whether you're gay or straight, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, um, just a universal teen truth, if you will. And they did such a good job of capturing that with no words from any of the cast members with just the music playing. It's just, it's a phenomenal entrance to the movie and it just makes us so excited to see what is going to happen so great opening yeah and then and already we're already seeing like not only like how the characters are different but how their upbringings are already different like for example like Claire really like her dad doesn't owe her anything but he tells her like oh I'll make it up to you for that I couldn't get you out of this or whatever so it's like you can tell she's she's spoiled um, oh, yeah. Can I ask you a question about that, actually? Yeah. Watching the interaction, because I know Misa and I have probably watched this movie like 30 times, you know, in this Today. month. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I feel uncomfortable with the way he kind of turns towards her and talks to her. Like, I feel like it's a little bit of an uncomfortable father-daughter situation. I mean, I'm not, you know, insinuating anything, but I don't like the way he talks to her as a parent, like I would never brush my child's hair back and be like, Oh, I'll make it up to you. Like, I don't know. It was weird. It was weird to me. I'm not a fan of the body language. Um, and we do get a little bit more like background about Claire, um, when she's talking to Andy and Bender kind of about her parents. Um, but I just, I don't know. I don't like the way that he interacts with her in that scene. And it always made me kind of uncomfortable growing up too watching that okay so it made you feel kind of icky yeah like just the way like he completely turns to her and like I don't know it wasn't the conversation wasn't like a typical father-daughter conversation and again I didn't grow up rich I didn't grow up as a princess I didn't skip school to go shopping so maybe I just don't know what it's like to have that dynamic between someone I'm one okay I do I I do agree with you to an extent, 
because, um, and I'm sure you did the same thing. One of the things that I did was like, I kept watching the movie over and over just to watch other people. Like I yes. tried not to watch the foreground all the time. I tried to watch it, what people were doing. Cause throughout the movie, uh, mm-hmm. even though they're not present in the scene, as far as dialogue, every member of this cast is present in some way in that library. Um, and I did, I, one of my rewatches, I did kind of watch the dad a little closer um, so, uh, cause in that scene, Claire's kind of in the foreground. So yes. I was kind of trying to watch him to see like how he reacted to her. And, uh, when it's a small part like that, I usually see like, did they milk their two seconds on film? Like, did they, how exactly did they act while they were in this movie? And so I do kind of see what you're saying, but I guess from my perspective, and, uh, I just kind of saw it more as like a father who obviously like they're rich. They've kind of depended on their money uh, to, I guess, quote unquote, bond them. And it's like you said, or like she does mention how they they both kind of use each other to get back at each other. Like how her parents that are always kind of like flip flopping on her. Um, so when I watched him interact with her, I kind of saw it as a father who didn't really know how to interact with his daughter because they really don't do it very often. Okay. That's a good point, which would make it come off as a not a father-daughter. Okay, sorry. I just had to throw that out there because, like, in all these years of me watching it, I was always like, uh, creeper. (laughs) I hadn't – I guess I hadn't thought of it as long as you had, but it was something that I recently picked up on. And my take on it is just like, well, they're not very close to begin with. And so now that she's not getting her way, he doesn't really know how to treat her. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense. I don't know. No, that makes a but lot of sense. But I do, I get, okay. I, like, some of his facial expressions are definitely kind of weird. <laughs> right. Like, it's not like a father, you know, facial expression. It's like a, it's like a girlfriend, almost, or like a, someone who you're, like, doting on. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, it's not, it's not a father thing. Like, I mean, if Taryn got in trouble, her dad wouldn't be like, oh, I'll make it up to you. Mm, no. Yeah. And I think sometimes in situations where it's, like, you know, it, rich parents and therefore a rich, spoiled kid. Sometimes I, at least from like stories that I've heard, or at least in the movies, um, usually um, like the parent will try to be a friend and not a parent. That's true. Thinking of Mean Girls, which mm-hmm. I'm not the I'm yeah. not a normal mom. Not your average mom. mom. As her dog is chewing on her nipple. Oh, God, Weird. <laughs> um, but that's that's kind of the impression that I got. I do I do agree with you to an extent. Yes, some of his facials are a little weird, and um, I don't yeah, know. It the was, body language. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, definitely. Um, but overall, yeah, I just kind of saw it as like. Um, a really weird kind of strained uh, kind of relationship. Um, and, yeah. and then in, in addition to that, we also see like, you know, obviously like he's got the BMW, he's well off. But like, meanwhile, like Andy and Brian respectively show up in like very typical American vehicles, you know, like a, I guess like a Chevy and like a truck, you know. Yeah. Like a station class. wagon is what Brian gets out of. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, it's very, very working class. And then on top mm-hmm. of that, we meet the parents very briefly and they're already just like reaming their children about, well, you need to do this. And if you want to do this, then you need to be like this. And so it's uh, one of the, one of the things that I read up on about it was like, you kind of see that um, they, they're not as well off judging by like their cars. So they want their kids to succeed so that there will be uh, some kind of safety net at some point. Whereas Claire doesn't have to worry about anything like that. 
Right. So, and then of course, Bender, who is just kind of on his own, um, <laughs> walks in and then Allison gets ignored. Uh, so already we're kind of already without them even having to say much, we're already kind of seeing like who these characters are um, and what they've come from. Yeah. And then they walk into the library and they all kind of start taking their seats, which is another thing that I think is so important to their characters because you kind of see like Claire and Andy sit by each other, you know, um, and it's very evident like, okay, they're kind of in the same class. And then Allison goes straight towards the back corner. Uh, we see Brian kind of grab a seat, but then Bender comes over and like takes that spot and you know, without even saying anything, Brian just like gets up and moves the opposite. Um, and it's evident that Bender is a frequent flyer before we hear any talking because he kind of like gets comfortable, puts his speed up, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do see, like I said, that Andrew and Claire are obviously within the same social circles because they kind of look at each other and laugh. They kind of have that, you know, um, recognition. The facial, yeah, the facial talking also, you know, like where you just look at someone and you know what they're thinking or whatever. Um, and then we see the worst administrator ever. And like, I just want to say as a teacher, I look back at this movie and I watched this movie specifically to see like, oh my God, is this how my students view me? Um, and guys, he would have gotten fired so fucking fast. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like as I watching this as an adult, I'm just like, did he really lock Bender in a closet like like he wants to get in the closet you know yelled like you cannot tell kids to shut up you cannot tell kids like you can't threaten them the way they did like I mean it's just some of the language he uses his tone I'm like oh my god but you know what's funny though about Vernon is like even though he's so antagonistic there are still moments where he's so human and sympathetic and hilarious that I just yes! sometimes I feel like when he spills his coffee all over his lunch, I genuinely cannot watch that scene because I feel so bad for him. <laughs> but I mean, that's what he that's what makes the actor, that's what makes Paul Gleason so great. And they even said like between takes, he was just goofing off right with them like he was a kid too. Yeah. But like in the movie, he's so hateable. But even then you see these moments where he too is vulnerable and he too is human. So like, yes, in, in, depending on, I guess, the stage in your life that you see it or whatever, sometimes you're kind of like, damn, Vernon, they really fucked you up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we feel bad for him a little. Well, and I do kind of feel like I think my view has changed on him a little bit because like even though I say like he's a horrible teacher, like he would have been fired, he is very human. Like I don't – unless you're in education, people don't realize how hard it is to be in education. We don't have just one job, guys. We have like so many jobs, so many people coming after us, so many things we have to do within a day. I mean we get told all the time like it's not my kid's fault this person did this, like you have to, there's just so much, there's so much legality and politics behind teaching now. Like, and this was done in 1985, you know what I mean? Like here we are so many years later and it's even worse. So my heart goes out to him because I feel like he probably was an amazing teacher at one time, which we kind of see a conversation about that between him and Carl later. Um, And just over the years, like kids, do have so much more stress now because of social media, TV, academics. Like when I went to my sister's graduation for high school, Misa, what was our GPA? Like, what did we want to get our GPA? What was the top GPA that we could have? 
4.0? A 4.0, right? Okay. There was, I kid you not, like 20 kids who graduated with a 6.0 and under. And I mean, to have to try to keep your average at that, plus you have to be in everything nowadays or you're not even qualifying for scholarships. I mean, it's hard. It's so hard. And so I feel like years and years and years of that, Vernon changed. And like I said, we do see him kind of talk about that. It's just, it's, he is very lovable at moments and he played this part just so like hilarious. I love him. Mm -hmm. And there's one scene that I love in particular with him and Andy that we'll get to in a second that I just think is hilarious. (laughs) Um, But I mean, he's almost like that comic relief too, even though he's the antagonist. Yeah. You had to pick one, like you said. Yeah. He's like a wacky villain. Like, he's the wacky villain who gets, like, killed by his own invention kind of villain. <laughs> yes. But he still survives at the same time. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> um, but I love, I love, and I have to, I have to talk about this because I already told him. Um, the When he comes in, he gives him the assignment. He's like, okay, I want you to write a thousand words on who you think you are. Um, and then he's like, any questions? And Bender's like, yeah, I have a question. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? He's like, I'll give you the answer to that question, Mr. Bender, next Saturday. Legit. I used to tell this to my history teacher in high school all the fucking time, my sophomore year. Because he was also like, my my history teacher at the time was Mr. Hall. Hey, Mr. Hall. I think you're listening. Um, and he was like, he he was really in touch on pop culture. Like he would he would see me wearing like a Rocky Horror shirt and he would call me out for it and stuff. Like he was in touch, right? And so um, whenever he would give us an assignment, I would wait for him to be done explaining. And sometimes he would tack on any questions. And that's what I'd be like, yeah, does Barry Manilow, (laughs) dress up as Barry Manilow, by the way. But it was still really funny. And he would answer me, I'll give you the answer to that question, Misa, next Saturday. We were never anywhere on Saturdays. (laughs) <laughs> don't mess with the bull young man you'll get the horn you'll get the bull. he used to say that to me too <laughs> it was the great like the the references i used to make to this movie in high school were just non-fucking stop it was integrated in and they're timeless there. right yeah. they're timeless yeah. like i still make those references today so i have a question did anybody else in your class get it or i think well right next to me would chris garza sat next to me he got it of course, Chris. Yeah, uh, Chris. So he um, he got it, but like I don't think anyone else cared. Um, they weren't as awesome, but I loved <laughs> I loved making that reference. Um, so funny. And this kind of answers that question to like you said how we hear the voiceover from the beginning from Brian. We don't know it's Brian yet, but why he's talking about the essay and everything. And so this is where we get introduced to what that actual topic is. And Vernon does say that he wants them to write an essay, no less than a thousand words about who you are. Um, and he does obviously know Bender well, because again, frequent flyer, he's like, that doesn't mean you're going to write the same word over and over and over. (laughs) Good strategy though. Good strategy. You tried. A for effort. <laughs> so then so then he leaves them alone, which I and don't get me wrong, I love this movie, but it has always bothered me that he pretty much just leaves them alone. He never ever does periodic checks on them. I mean, granted, he goes off and gets drunk with Carl eventually, but he never even pokes his head in just to see if they're still alive. Like what if they suffocated? What if they did no. start a fire? <laughs> he like looks over from his desk. And calls him fucking prick. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love 
love no I love when he silently does it remember when they're like they still have the door open and they're like I don't know what happens he does something and then he like leans out into the door frame and then he leans back in and it's really subtle but it's so funny like these little moments in this movie all the little moments are the best like Yes. I love all the little subtleties, all the little things you have to pick up on, the facial expressions, everything. Yes. And that's why I really do think, Misa, it's such it's such a play to me because – and I know that we see it just because of that theater perspective and that theater mindset that we just naturally have because, you know, theater, theater dorks. Um, but if you watch – and I really – I would really encourage you to watch it not within the same week even, but just watch it as a different character each time. Um, and you'll really get to see like how the other characters react to what someone is saying or how that character feels. And I just, I love that they are so embodied into these characters that they're playing. And I mean, when we get to some fun facts, I'm sure Misa and I both have facts about this, um, but just just the way they rehearsed and practiced for these characters, it shows. Mm-hmm. It absolutely shows. Yeah, for sure. So. And then that's when Bender starts kind of fucking around. Bender starts oh, yeah. being like super instigating, annoying. I love when like Allison is like chewing on her fucking thumbnail, which – I'm and she's so chewing on it weird, right? Like, have you ever watched how she's chewing on it? She's like, it's like, I don't know what she's doing, but she, she like twists her arm around. She's like literally looking like she's eating her thumb off. Legit. And then Bender's like, keep it in your hand. You're not going to be hungry for lunch. And then she spits her nail at him. Oh, that's good shit. Okay. So then like, then he starts teasing Claire and Andy. And this is the quote that you sent me the other day. Oh, God, yes. Come on, Squirtle. So. Love a little Do you slip her the hot beef injection? Go to hell. Oh, that's good shit. So then, um. So they're finally alone, and Bender's like, what do you say we close that door? And he's like, we can't have any kind of party with Verna checking in on us. He's like, Brian's like, the door's supposed to stay open. It's like, so? Yeah, Bender's trying to close the door. Like Misa said, he says, like, we can't have any kind of party with, you know, Vernon checking in on us. And they start talking about how um, Andrew and Claire are kind of like, oh, you know, do you have anything going on? You know, like, they obviously, again, hang out in the same social circles, and this is where we learn a little bit more about Claire. She's like, well, my dad you know, my mom says I'm grounded, but my dad says blow her off kind of thing. And so we hear a little bit about that. And then we also start talking about how they're in, you know, like the popular clubs, like social clubs, the cheerleading, you know, Andy's on the wrestling team. And this is when we see that dynamic shift between them, if you will, because, you know, Bender's like, yeah, y'all are a bunch of assholes. And she's like, you don't even know any of us. He's like, well, I don't know any fucking lepers that are not about to go and join their club either. And during this time, we also have Brian, who's kind of babbling on about, I'm in the math club, in the physics club. What are you babbling about? He's like, what I was saying is that I was in the math club and the Latin club and the physics club. <laughs> and Bender's like, what do you, uh, he's like, Claire, are you in any of those clubs? And she's like, well, no, those are academic clubs. Those are different. And so we do see that to me is kind of pivotal because it makes us realize like you can be in lots of different clubs, but you're also judged in high school based on the clubs that you are in, 
Like if you are in those academic clubs, you're not seen as the popular people or the beautiful people or the athletic people like we see for Andy and Claire. And I feel like Bender is really trying to make a point of that right now. And Andy and Claire are like not having it. Andy even goes so far to tell Bender, like, you don't even fucking matter. Like Claire just calls him a burner and says, you know, like you just dump on everything. You don't care about anything because you're scared. And, you know, Bender's like, yeah, okay, <laughs> this is great. Um, but my favorite quote is, like Misa said, coming up. Um, and when Bender's like, you know, what are you babbling about? He's like, what do you do in physics and in the physics club? And Brian's like, oh, you know, we talk about physics, the properties of physics. And he's like, so it's sort of social, demented and sad, but social, right? And, and Brian's like, well, I mean, I guess you could consider us a social situation. Like, you know, we we have a party, a big banquet at the end of the air. You load up, you party. He's like, well, no, no, we get dressed up. We don't get high. And then he's still like, I love no, Brian. Yeah. Sorry. Anthony so Michael funny. Hall is my favorite. I know that Bender is like the obvious favorite and like Emilio is the obvious cute boy, but I love Anthony Michael Hall like I to this day I love Anthony Michael Hall so I love and then, and then right after that oh, he starts ranting he's like I had my cousin my, my cousin Kendall and he got high once and then he just started kind of like eating like really weird foods and then he started feeling like he didn't belong kind of like Twilight Zone kind of <laughs> I love him he's so cute he just goes off on this tangent like is anyone listening to you dude <laughs> Yes, I love. Yeah, that's a good part because Brian is just adorable. It's so funny, and it's just it's it's such a good scene because again we get to kind of see those characters unfold even more, and we do get little glimpses of like like I said Claire's background. We know that Bender is obviously anti club, anti school prep, like anti whatever. We know that Brian's definitely our academic friend, and all this time, if you watch Allison. She's just in the background, like people watching. She is the wallflower. She's taking in everything that everyone's saying. She's not interjecting. She's not commenting. She's just watching them. And just it's it's hilarious to watch her face as she's like listening to what they're saying and everything. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that I love about Allison is like she doesn't even talk until like 33 minutes in, but she's so present, like her <laughs> facial expressions and her reactions. And she's always just kind of lingering in the background. I love when she's like, ha! And then Claire, everybody looks at her like, and then Claire's like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> It takes her a moment to almost say it because it's kind of like Shocked they're also she actually said something or like laughed, I guess. Yeah. Um, and like you said, one of the parts that I think is really important um, was what you mentioned is what Andy tells him, which word for word, I have the quote here. Um, Andy ends up looking at Bender and he says, you know, Bender, you don't even count. If you disappear forever, it wouldn't make any difference. You may as well not even exist at this school. And that kind of, I mean, you, you don't really see a visible pain on Bender's face, but he takes a moment to reply. All throughout the movie so far, Bender's really had these really quick quips for them. He's always kind of had these mm -hmm. clever comebacks and no one can ever really top him. But then Andy says that to his face and Bender's just kind of like, well, I, I guess I'll just go out and join the wrestling team. So he just starts criticizing Andy for being a wrestler. Um, but I feel like, that's one of the first moments where, like, 
something penetrated Bender, you know, in a way that hadn't before, you know? Um, I mean, maybe he's used to being looked down on by popular kids, but to actually be directly talked down to as a human being is... Right. It's a very humanizing moment, like you said, and it really makes you relate to Bender. And it also makes you realize kind of like Andy is an asshole in in this part. And he kind of feels like, almost like he's on a pedestal, like he can say whatever he wants. You know what I mean? At least that's the way that I took it. Like, especially even the way that him and Claire talk to the others at the first part of the movie, I feel like it's very like uppity. Like they're looking down on people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So So. like there's this imaginary hierarchy in high school. So then, so yeah. So even though they're meshing, they're also still kind of very much at odds at the same time. They're still not quite getting each other yet. So then we see Bender and they're all like, or Andy's telling him not to. And Bender goes ahead and like, I guess he, I thought he removed like something from the hinge. Um, right to make it to where the door doesn't stay open anymore and so it slams shut and so Vernon comes back and they're just like they're all shouting at Bender like fix the door fix the door so he comes in and like why is that door closed I think a screw fell out of it and none of them this is one of the first moments that when I first saw this movie it kind of surprised me none of them tell on him no um so it's already kind of like even though they're all so different, they do have the common enemy in Vernon. And it's enough to be like, yeah, we don't know who did that. Like none of them tell on him, even though he's being obnoxious, even though he's kind of already pissed them all off. None of them tell him that like Bender did it, even though they could have. Claire almost is like, excuse me, sir, why would anyone steal a screw? Because, <laughs> And he looks at her almost like dumbfounded. Yeah. You know, because he's like, why would you like – you're almost mm-hmm. defending me, right? Like that mm-hmm. was his facial. And she looks at him like, like in disgust, like it wasn't for real. Right. Just shut up. Right, exactly. And then um, I love, this is where my favorite quote comes in. As I love when he's like, give it to me, Bender. He's like, I don't have it. He's like, you want me to, you want me to snag you out of that seat and shake it out of you? And then Bender's like, I don't have it. Screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. And I just, that is so fucking perfect I think that's one of those quotes that can be used at any point in time just like oh no I spilled milk well the world's an imperfect place or oh no I got my heart broken well the world's an imperfect you know what I mean like it kind of goes with everything and I just I love how he says it and it's just it's like oh man Bender's getting deep So Vernon is like, Andrew Clark, get up here, and has him put like this. First, he tries to put like a folding metal chair in front of like. The door is way too heavy, sir. (laughs) And then the door just goes, whoop, and like the metal doors, the metal chair slams and like flies, and you hear him, God damn it. So good. It's so good. And then he opens the door and he tells Andrew to come up and they move like this magazine holder where he's like, watch the magazines. And Bender's like, hey, how come Andrew gets to get up? If he gets up, we'll all get up. It'll be anarchy. <laughs> and me and my friend used to say that in high school all the all fucking the time. time. All so the time. So then Andrew crawls back over the magazine thing. And then Bender's like, I don't think it's a really good idea. You know, like, what if there's a fire? You're violating fire codes. <laughs> Endangering like, lives of children. 
an unwise juncture in your education, in your career, sir. And Vernon kind of thinks about this. And then Brian's like, well, you know, the library comes equipped with fire exits at either end of, and Bender's like, show Dick some respect. And, <laughs> and then Vernon like shifts it. And he's like, what, what are you doing here? Get this out of here for a guy. What are you thinking? What is wrong with you? Like totally turns it on Andrew. And he's like, I expected more from a varsity letterman. (laughs) And you kind of see him like walking like a sad, a sad puppy almost. Like he's kind of like, but you, you just told me like, okay. And it's just, it's a great scene and it's so funny. And we do get to see more Vernon who's like, obviously very human. Like you said, like doesn't think things through all the way. He still like, doesn't know how to navigate, you know, the school or like the kids or necessarily relate to them. But he still tries to save face. Yes, exactly. He still tries and, to be intimidating and authorita- authoritative. Yes. And then, you know, he tells Bender, like, you're not fooling anybody, Bender. The next crew that falls out is going to be you. And what does Bender say? <laughs> Eat my shorts. What was that? Eat my shorts. You just bought yourself another Saturday, mister. Ah, oh, I'm crushed. <laughs> you just bought one more right there. And I, I'm not sure how many people know this, but Bender says eat my shorts a whole six years before it ever became Bart Simpson's catchphrase. Like the Simpsons weren't even a thing. Yeah. And there's the part where like Claire, sometimes she makes the weirdest face. Like when she tells him to cut it out and then she mouths the word stop to him. I hate the way she does that. Like no matter how many times I watched it, it's just, it's so ugly. Like I don't. I love how they, they make fun of it in not another teen movie. And he's like, Mitch, cut it out. Stop. <laughs> It's like I feel like he's like directly like exaggerating the way she did it. It's so much worse. Yes, it's so funny. Um, Are you through yet? <laughs> not even close, bud. Good, you got one more right there. <laughs> and he's like, "How many is that?" And then Brian's like, "Oh, it's seven, including the time when you asked him if Barry Manilow knew if he raided his wardrobe." Like now it's eight. You stay out of it. <laughs> so it's seven. You want to? And then he threatens him with detention. It's like this big thing. It's so stupid. But yeah, Bender gets attention for two months. And it's just like, okay, he's like, two, two months, Bender, you're mine. <laughs> Next time I have to come in here, I'm cracking skulls. <laughs> and Bender mouths this because obviously, frequent flyer, this is obviously something Vernon says quite a lot. It's and an then, of course, of course. And Vernon walks out as Bender screams, fuck you. And it's he kind, kind of an of, epic fuck you. Yeah, it's loud. Heard through double doors. And Vernon doesn't – and I do appreciate Vernon for not going back in there. Like, he just lets him have it. He lets him say it, you know, because I guess at that age, um, you know, your ability to stand up to a teacher or, like, curse at a teacher kind of gave you more popularity or more like, oh, he has balls. You know what I mean? And for Vernon to go back in and – have another power struggle just would have been ridiculous so he kind of sighs and lets it be so yeah but you and that's another humanizing moment is Mm -hmm. when you you see the look on vernon's face like he's just kind of defeated and he's just like uh two more months 
every Saturday with this guy, same thing. And you just, you're just kind of watching him get beaten further and further down. He's already kind of been beaten down as a veteran teacher. Um, which by the way, I wanted to piggyback off of what you were saying earlier, but I forgot to jump in. I do want to say that at a time like this, when everyone is basically being homeschooled, I hope more than ever that everyone appreciates teachers <sighs> because parents who have zero experience teaching or homeschooling or even being around their children for more than, you know, X amount of hours a day after work, everyone obviously is stuck at home with their kids right now. And so, you know, parents are learning firsthand just exactly what teachers see and go through on a daily basis. And I just hope that it it brings some kind of change to like legislation, to budgets, to voting, to just people's uh, people's outlook and opinion on teachers and what they deserve, because it is not an easy job, like you said, and like you especially, you work with SPED. Yeah, so I'm a special is, ed teacher, right. and um, and I do teach all grade levels. So I I don't even know, like guys. Coronavirus has made the education system so unknown right now. Um, and I mean, we deal with these behaviors. So like what you're seeing in this movie, these kids are 16, 17 in high school. I already see this in elementary school. So, and I already see these pressures and these other things starting as early as elementary school. So can you imagine how our high schoolers feel? Like it just, it gives you more respect for our children. Like they are humans. Like, yes, they're children. Yes, they're still learning. Yes, they're supposed to be obedient, but they have feelings. They're human. They go through shit just like we do as adults. Like that doesn't stop just because you're a kid. Um, And the behaviors that I see in here, like I have kids curse me out all the time. And I mean, I have kids do things that like Allison, like where they don't talk. They like, I have selective mutes. I have kids who think they're like, Bender who can do whatever the fuck they want. And the biggest thing that comes down to it is you have to have a relationship with your kids and they have to know like, yes, I'm your teacher. Yes, I'm here for you. And there's a time where like, yeah, we can goof around and play and everything. But my kids know like, hey, we got to learn. They know to stop. But again, that's because I have a relationship with them and I miss them so much right now. I've been texting every single one of my kids since we had the announcement that rodeo was canceled and like everything was going on lockdown, education is being taught a lot online now. And so parents, I thank you for like stepping up. I know it's hard, especially if you are still a parent who works. Um, there are some jobs that are still open. So if you're one of those parents who works and then you also have to go home and teach, like that's hard. It's a hard job. Um, mm-hmm. Teaching is not easy and teaching is not babysitting. And I really hope that this does shed some light on people who think that I'm just a glorified babysitter. Right. Because I'm not. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, like, cause I remember like day two, I think of the whole quarantine order. Um, I saw memes already popping up like, Oh, I've been trying to homeschool my kids for two days now. Teachers don't make enough money. I'm going insane. And it's, you know, it's easy, I guess, to send your kids off to an educator for eight hours a day and not really have to worry about them until they're worn out and need a nap and a bath, and then mm-hmm. that's it. But it's another to be stuck with them all week, every day, and you cannot take them out, and you cannot take them anywhere to let them wear out their energy or tire them out a bit or let them run around. Like, right now is not a good time, you know, and so it's it, it'll be interesting to see 
like just the resulting uh, reaction, like how many of them went stir crazy, how many of them, you know, how many of them really did open their eyes to what it is like to have to take care of multiple children throughout the day, every day, and not get paid enough for it. Like these parents aren't getting paid to take care of their own kids. So how much they think the teachers feel, you know? Right. Yeah. So it'll be, I hope that, you know, I'm not saying everything happens for a reason in the sense that, yeah, we needed this virus to really straighten us out. But pollution has gone down. Traffic has gone down. Thank you. Like I, on you've seen the happening, right? And oh, I know yeah. I'm totally segueing, but I feel like, it's also mother nature, like telling us like, you are fucking up the world. Like in Italy alone, if you see just how the ecosystem has changed and already gotten better just from them being on quarantine, like it's, it's crazy how quickly our world can, um, you know, fix itself from those reduced emissions from cars. And I mean, we're eating out less, like overall, I do almost feel like this is helpful in a way. Like, yeah, it sucks. It sucks to not be able to go out and do things. But it's giving us time to have more family time, go out on walks, eating together. Like, I don't know about you guys, but we're doing a lot more home cooking because it's easier just to do it at home than to get out and then go to a dine-in, which, I mean, it sucks for restaurants and things like that. So I get, like, I'm kind of playing both fields here. But it is – it's almost like it was needed. Now, granted, we're not like throwing ourselves in front of combines and like killing ourselves like in the happening, you know, mass suicides, jumping off buildings and whatnot. Um, but I, we need to take care of our earth, guys. We only have one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I was thinking about that too earlier. I just kind of thought like maybe this is just the world's way of saying that it needed a hard reset and so did we. But it's going to be sad because once everything does kind of return to some sense of quote-unquote normalcy, pollution is going to go back up. Traffic is going to start up again. You know, like there will be some sense of normal, I think. Mm -hmm. But at what cost? So anyway, guys, um, feel free to donate (laughs) your favorite environmental fund in our name. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, regardless, though, when things do start to function um, in a somewhat regular basis, we really do need to give another thought, many, many thoughts to our planet and actively try to preserve it because uh, I don't I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to do this again. No. <laughs> I don't want to live in another pandemic. I also feel like it's almost like a wake up call for us to like slow down. Mm-hmm. Like we have to appreciate what we have. Um, and you know, those material things, like they don't really count for much right now. Like, it's great that you have three BMWs and all this other shit in your driveway. What are you, what are you doing with them right now? Oh, that's right. They're sitting in your driveway because you can't do much with them. Like we need to focus more on the time that we have and, you know, relish in that. And Misa put up a quote from the Lorax the other day, which is just, it's so perfect right now. Like if none of us care, nothing's going to change. Like mm-hmm. someone has to care mm-hmm. um, and we all have to be willing to be that person to care and just do our part, just do our part. And yeah. thank, thank you, thank you, thank you to all those people who the nurses, the doctors, police officers, firefighters, all those people who are out there still working, still busting their asses to make sure that we're healthy and we're safe. Um, you know, those Amazon Prime delivery drivers, UPS drivers, drivers in general. Drivers, mm-hmm. any, truck driver, any person like that, like, guys, 
we owe them so much right now. Mm-hmm. And same thing. What are we paying them? Right. Exactly. Like people were saying like now that all the quote unquote unessential places have shut down, we are truly seeing who really runs the country. And it's people like the truck drivers and the medical staff and the doctors and the nurses and the people who are still making the world go round at this moment are not getting enough appreciation. And, no. and you know, these are the ones whose voices we should be hearing. These are the ones whose budgets we should be raising. These are the ones who should eventually be in office. People who have experience from like mm-hmm. the nitty gritty. Don't even get me started on politics right now. But one thing that annoys the fuck out of me is just like, I keep hearing about these billionaires getting richer and richer. And I'm like, why? Like, what are you going to do with that money? What do you want to die with a big number next to your name? Is that it? Like, why do you need that money? What are you doing with it? It's just a number in your bank account that makes you feel good. It's like you can't take it with you. No, you can't. I just don't get it. I just don't get people right now. But, I mean, yeah, I think the world just needed a breather. And this is its way of kind of telling us that, like, yeah, sometimes we get so caught up in, like, oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I wish I had a break. Now we have this moment where the world is literally turned off. We should kind of take it advantage of it as much as we can before we are busy again and we wish we had time off. Exactly. That's so true. Well said, Misa. And while you're on this wonderful reset break, you can rewatch The Breakfast Club (laughs) and think about all the awesome fun facts and everything that we've gone over and we'll continue to go over because we're only about, what, a fourth into the movie? (laughs) I'm sorry, guys. Well, first we went on this tangent, but... (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, there's just so much about this movie that I love. So after, like, it's like what you said about teachers needing to have a relationship with their kids. And that's exactly what Vernon doesn't have. Again, like you said, in the movie later, we do hear him tell Carl, like, he's been teaching for 22 years. Somewhere in those 22 years, his fire burned out. Like, the kids just got more and more arrogant, as he says. They beat him down further and further, and it's kind of like those insecurities. Like, you hear something enough, and you start to believe it. And so these kids eventually villainize him to the point where he kind of became a villain. Maybe he was the kind of teacher who had a relationship with his kids before. Maybe 22 years before this movie took place, he had a student like Bender that he was able to reach. But somewhere along the line, he became this very strict authority figure because he felt like that was the only way he could get a response. And now he's not even getting a response that way. It's because he doesn't have that interpersonal relationship that you talk about, like teachers needing with their kids. And it's sad to see, but you kind of understand why with the context you get about Vernon. You can kind of tell he once may have been a very good teacher, but just years of getting beaten down over and over, it took its toll. And that happens. And it's such a human thing. Uh, Not even just like teachers, but like in general, sometimes you hear something enough and you start to believe it and it gets embedded in your head and you just kind of can't shake it. So I think, you know, maybe in another universe, there's a movie where Vernon and Bender do get along and they do reach each other. And it's one of those like inspirational, like (laughs) goodwill hunting movies or something. Uh, But in this particular timeline, in this context, Vernon is the way that he is because of 
what he's been through and because of what he's seen throughout his years and throughout his tenure in the education system and it humanizes him that moment when he leaves and then Bender says fuck you and he hears it like that makes me feel bad for Vernon um just because he looks so defeated um but like it's a double-edged sword it's a two-way street yeah and then we see after that moment we see everyone kind of like sitting doing their own thing not writing their paper um you know Bender's like lighting his shoe on fire we see Claire kind of thinking Brian it looks like he gets like a hard on and he like kind of nonchalantly throws it took me forever to realize what he was doing because he's looking at Claire and then he's like I guess getting a boner yeah it took me forever to realize that and then he kind of pulls his pants and he like nonchalantly throws his um beanie down onto his lap um we see Andrew like playing with a string and his hoodie yeah, like on his hoodie yeah um Allison finds a string and she's like wrapping it around her finger to like cut the circulation off um yeah Allison then starts drawing this amazing piece on her table and Andrew's playing football play uh like a paper football and he flicks it and then goes like, yeah, like does a silent cheer. <laughs> and then Allison's picture is like all done. And we see her like shake her dandruff all onto it to be snow. And she looks proud. And then she kind of puts her head down. And I don't know if you ever catch on to this, but her eyes look so tired mm-hmm. and sad right here. Like they, the film is just on her face and she just looks so tired. And I don't know if that was purposeful. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't really research just that part. But I just always felt like she just looks so so sad and tired right now. Yeah. Just, um, yeah, because there's a part where, like, she it's the part where she rests her head down on her hands, like, right before they all fall asleep, right? Yeah. Not Okay, not only do I agree with you, that's the part where I think she looks like you most. Oh. <laughs> the shape of her face and her hair. Like, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I have a picture of you like that. But anyway. Um, yes, like when she when she puts her head down like that, her eyes were kind of bloodshot. Yeah. It made me wonder if maybe Ali Sheedy didn't sleep the night before to get that look. I don't know. Maybe she method acted or something. But um, yeah, like I definitely, yeah, she looks kind of like a little bloodshot, a little watery, maybe yeah. teary-eyed, but definitely very tired. And that you can kind of see them all winding down. Mm-hmm. It's still really early in the morning. It's a Saturday. They had to be there early and they're all just kind of drifting off to sleep. Um, and apparently there was supposed to be a dream sequence here. Yes. Which would have thrown the movie off, I think, completely. Um, so the dream sequence, I feel, would have been crazy in there. Um, there were a lot of other scenes that were cut out, actually. And John Hughes says that he did not, like the premiere, he has the one and only copy of the complete two and a half hour film. Um yes. Which yeah, is like in a vault somewhere. I know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure his kids are the only ones who've like seen it, right? If I have no idea who has seen it, I know that it exists somewhere, mm-hmm. and he's the only one who knows what's really on it. But I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would have liked it. So based on what I researched and found, let me know if you found something different, Misa. Um, Allison is the one who's dreaming um, at first, and then it kind of breaks up into different the kids dreaming um, different random things. So in Allison's first dream, she imagines Andrew as this like gluttonous Viking. 
Um, Bender is a prisoner. Claire is a bride. Brian is an astronaut. And then she herself is a vampire. Um, And then that kind of segues into all the kids imagining like different random things, which includes like cars, naked women, Godzilla, beer, um, different types of planes. And these are all kind of like their own individual random ass thoughts until Vernon comes in and screams, wake up. And then who has to go to the laboratory, <laughs> the laboratory, whatever you say. <laughs> Dude, that's so, I would not have liked that. I don't think I don't, it would have been. I think it was a great idea to cut it. I think yeah. it was a great idea to cut it. Did you, were you able to find if they actually filmed it or was it just written? Um, there is the unfilmed alternative where they're all dreaming their own thing. Um, mm-hmm. but that was completely cut. The dream sequence was written, but not filmed. So I guess he kind of had two ideas, like where it would be a continuation. And okay. so he cut that first part, but then he did film the, um, the dream sequence, like alternative where they're all kind of thinking their own thing. I don't want to look it up right now, but I'm wondering if he, because I know John Hughes wrote National Lampoon's Vacation, mm-hmm. but then um, I don't know if he wrote National Lampoon's European Vacation, but there's a very similar dream sequence in European Vacation. I love like that movie. Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, Rusty, and Audrey, who Rusty in part one was Anthony Michael Hall. Right. They all fall asleep on the plane and they each have a different dream and like, like uh, Audrey dreams that she's like gluttonous, like she's eating a bunch of food because she's worried about her weight. And like Rusty dreams about dancing with women and like Clark dreams about singing on the hills, like the sound of music. And so it's like, so it's funny that, that that's kind of how that was going to go because it reminds me of that dream sequence in European Vacation. And it sounds kind of similar, like the similar device. Yeah. So, but I'm glad that they cut it. Um, I, I don't, I just, I feel like the movie, of course, it's easy to say now in retrospect that since the movie is finalized and we've seen it this way a hundred thousand times. Right. That, yes, this is how we prefer it. It's easy to say that. But I just, I can't see how a dream sequence would A, be very essential and B, help the flow of any, like help the flow. Like what is it for? Right. I feel like it would have just, it's kind of like it just would have been there to like fill space but it wasn't needed. And so I'm really glad that Hughes was able to direct this film and like we only need the necessary parts. Like we don't need these extra kind of background stories or just like fillers like some of the other teen movies had back then. Like you talked about like the sex scenes and you know the nudity scenes. Like you don't always need those fillers to make a great movie. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you really don't need them all mm-hmm. the time. Um and I think this film shows that and right. so I'm I'm glad that he cut that out for real and speaking of cut scenes yeah this was weird so evidently there's also a scene in the film that was um I think there was partial some of it was filmed because I know they hired the actress and they there did, were photos yeah. of her with Vernon at the pool mm-hmm. um so I saw I saw a few like behind the scenes photos of of the actress who whose name escapes me right now um, but there was a scene where evidently like the swimming team meets at the school on Saturdays. And I'm, I think Vernon didn't know this. It's a female swim team. And so they go to like the pool part of the gym or whatever. And mm-hmm. they're just kind of talking about like, oh, well, no one's here anyway. So they decide to swim naked. And so they like, they all take off their bathing suits and they jump in the pool. 
And um, Vernon's not watching the students. From what I understood, uh, Vernon like ends up find like he finds the teacher changing, and he watches her change. And so there was just a lot of like, I don't know how gratuitous it would have been, but there was like significant nudity as far as like the female body, um, and a few of them. And so uh, apparently, Molly Ringwald and Ali Sheedy were two of the ones who are amongst those who uh, who told John, like, hey, they're A, B, and C, this this really isn't necessary. They didn't yeah. really like uh, the portrayal of the females, I guess. Uh, they didn't like the fact that there was gratuitous nudity. And mm-hmm. they also didn't feel like it was necessary. Um, I don't think they were a big fan of, of Vernon being the one to watch them, too. Like, I think if that scene had even been left in, not only would it have been unnecessary and just, like, cheap nude, but also, like, it it kind of makes Vernon, like, a solidified dick. You stop feeling bad for him. Exactly. It changes the way you feel about his character. Yeah. Yes. And I think that if if we also added, like, the creeper to his already really bad list of qualities he would no longer have been as sympathetic. Like by the time he's ringing with Carl and admitting, you know, like these kids turned on me, you would not have felt either way about him. You would have just been like, whatever, dude, fuck off. Um, so I think it's important not only because the nudity is so unnecessary in this movie um, and not only because that scene in general was so unnecessary, but because of the light it would have shed on Vernon and how it would have changed the audience's perspective of him. I don't think you're meant to hate Vernon. Vernon is hilarious. Um, Vernon is the necessary evil in a sense. So I think if he had done something like that and they kept a scene like that, he probably would not have garnered uh, that much sympathy uh, from the audience. Um, You would have felt differently, I think about his character um i absolutely agree vernon i feel like is such a human character in this film like you said and he does show how all of us are just kind of changing like that you don't always have to be the protagonist or the antagonist or you know same thing with the kids like you don't have to have a 100 percent specific role this is always you everything is absolute like we are fluid. We are always changing depending on situations and, you know, who we're talking to and things like that. And I feel like Vernon just, while we see the movie based off of the teen's perspective, we do have a chance to kind of see him as an adult and realize that he's struggling too. And I think that makes, it just shows that we all have struggles. And even though we kind of separate those teens and those adult struggles I think that that would bring us closer if we were to just recognize that growing up is hard. Life is hard. Adulting is hard. Everything is so hard. Like nothing is easy. I don't know anyone who says like, oh, my life is just so easy. I don't know anyone who says that. Even billionaires, even, you know, the Donald Trumps and the Bill Gates of the world, they still have struggles. Mm-hmm. Um And I mean, yeah, they have buffers to make it a little bit easier, but I don't know anyone who doesn't have some sort of struggle day in and day out. And I think that's why this movie is just so amazing because like I said, it shows us that teen struggle, but it does show us the adult struggle, which we get to see a little bit more of that when we see Carl, who's introduced in just a couple seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, And we kind of see how the kids interact with him too. So 
I like how you said that it shows that even Vernon is suffering with trying to figure out his identity because like like we kind of mentioned earlier somewhere in the 22 years of teaching he's kind of lost it even though he's trying to get these kids to put themselves in a box and to define themselves in a way and to tell him who they think they are he himself doesn't really quite know who he is and he's a grown man mm-hmm. and and so it's um it's interesting to see that like even though he's trying to enforce these other people, these younger, more impressionable people to, uh, to define themselves in such a way, he can't really do that for his own self anymore. And so it kind of, it kind of reminds me of the whole, like, sometimes you hate someone because they're so much like you. Mm. Sometimes you don't get along with someone because they remind you so much of yourself. And then it brings you back to the, would you be friends with yourself question? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of, that's what I get when I think of Vernon as far as like being human. Um, so yeah, and so I'm glad that those scenes were cut. I don't, I don't see how or why they would fit. Um, I think the movie's better off without them. Thank God we don't have that dream sequence there. And then we move on to, they've gone to the bathroom, they're kind of all stretching, Bender's tearing out pages from a book, and you know, he gets, uh, Andrew's like, oh, that's real intelligent, and he's like, you're right, it's wrong to destroy literature, and Moliere really pumps my nads. <laughs> he's like, Moliere. Um, by the way, I have to mention this. Um, this the part where she says Moliere, and then they show her smiling at Bender. Um, I had to mention this because, like, I remember like when I was in middle school, VH1 did like a best pop culture icons of all time yes and molly ringwald was on the list and they used that clip of her smiling and i remember distinctly fucking dave Grohl was one of the interviewees and he said quote i would have given my left nut to be with molly ringwald for one night and then they show her smiling. And I just always, always, always remember him saying that when I watched this movie. Like, he adored Molly Ringwald. That's so cute. I love yeah. it. Uh, so then he starts throwing the cards around. And, um, you know, they start talking about kind of their parents and, like, getting along with their parents and everything. Bender's like, Sporto, you get along with your parents? And he's like, well, if I say yes, I'm an idiot, right? He's like, you're an idiot anyways. But if you say you get along with your parents, you're a liar too. And so they start talking about, you know, that. And Bender and Andrew kind of have this moment. Bender does this hilarious thing that everyone loves where he says, can you hear this? Want me to turn it up as he flicks him off? And Brian tries to intervene, which I always think is so hilarious because he's like this scrawny little adorable, yeah, hey, fellas, I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it just cracks me up because he like comes in like he's going to do something. <laughs> he's like, you know, I don't get along with my parents either. You know, their idea of parental compassion is just, you know, wacko. Wacko. <laughs> And then Mrs. Bender's like, kid, he's like, you are a parent's wet dream, okay? And he tries to blow him off. (laughs) Yes. And he's like, he calls him the famous line, the Neo-Maxi Zoom Dweeby, which Misa and I said we're going to talk about. We have found it both ways. Neo-Maxi Zoom with an N Dweeby and Neo-Maxi Zoom 
dweeby. When I put the captions on, it was Zoon, Z-O-O-N as in Nancy, which I was not expecting. So was mine. Fun fact though, Jed Nelson actually just kind of created this insult by himself. It wasn't in the script. He just said it and he was known for doing this throughout the movie actually. Um, so yeah, he calls him a neo-maxi Zoom dweeby and then Andrew's like, why do you have to insult everyone? And Bender's like, I'm just being honest, asshole. I would expect you to know the difference. Um, and then they start, you realize that they don't know everyone's name. And so Andrew's like, hey, what's your name? Because he's like, he has a name pointing towards Brian. So we get to know some of their names and that's where we get to know Claire's name because you realize at this point they haven't said their names. And that's how we know more about that social background, like I said. And Bender's like, Claire. <laughs> I love the way he says it. Who, by the way, was originally Kathy, which this dialogue would make more sense with, I think. But I on. agree. I feel like Kathy is a fat girl name. <laughs> I don't want to say that out loud, but I will say that when I think of Kathy, I think of the comic strip Kathy, and she was kind of pudgy. Well, I think of Kathy Bates. Okay, that's fair, too. That's a good one. I didn't think of her right away, but I mean, it, I, you know, I don't want to say it, but you said it. <laughs> I said it. Sorry. Sorry, Claire's out there, and Kathy's out there. Um, I don't see Claire as a fat girl. Well, maybe. I don't either, but Bender does. And he goes on to tell her that she's not fat right now, but you know, one day she will be fat. And <laughs> mm -hmm. you're pushing maximum density. <laughs> I wish you could see Misa reenact this. Like the blowing up like a fucking <laughs> Violet. You're turning Violet, Violet. So then Claire flicks him off and he's like, oh, such obscene Ooh. gestures from a pristine girl. I'm not that pristine. Are you a virgin? <laughs> this part. Okay, I have questions okay. about this part. Can we talk yeah, about this part, about please? It. And then we're going to get into our second song. <laughs> all right. So he gets in her face. And it, this is a, out of all the scenes in the movie, I think this was probably one of the more quote-unquote awkward like if you were a kid and your parents were watching this with you yeah but he gets in her face and he's like are you a virgin and she doesn't really answer and he starts asking her really specific things like he asks her like have you ever been felt up over the bra under the blouse shoes off hoping to god your parents don't walk in and she just kind of like doesn't answer but she has this really mortified look on her face and then he describes like another like scenario like uh, no bra, blouse unbuttoned, uh, Calvin's in a ball in the front seat past 11 on school night. And she, her face drops and she does not answer him. And she tries to like look away and he like follows her gaze. And this is when Andy kind of defends her. Here's my question though. And this is what I've always wondered. I never quite understood. Are these legit stories he's heard about Claire and he's throwing them in her face? Or is he making this up to test her? It was my perception. And remember, this is just me. There's no research done on this. This is just my opinion. Um, I thought it was like rumors or things that he had heard about her. Okay. Because, you know, the popular girl, the 
prom queen, you know, the one who only dates athletes, you know, there's always rumors and stories about things like that. Um, and that was why I thought her face changed the way it did. Um, because of that. Okay. Thank you. I was, cause I was sure like, cause Bender's, um, it's like Andy said earlier, like Bender doesn't even count. So Bender's kind of an invisible being. Um, so it, in my head, it would not have, I would not have put it past the student body for like Bender to be hanging out by like a doorway or a locker or some shit. And he's overhearing like the jocks talking about their date with Claire or so-and-so talking about so-and-so's date with Claire and all the rumors that are spreading because everybody knows Claire so well right? that like, you know, everyone's kind of talking about her in some way. And it made me wonder if like these were things that Bender overheard. And because he knew these things, he was just kind of like, are you a virgin? Because I know that you've done this. But he's not really telling her that he knows it was her. Yes. And her, her face, like like you said, it looks mortified. But it also like, oh, my God. Like, has everyone heard that rumor? You know what I mean? Like, there's that underlying mm-hmm. right there. And it's it's very subtle until you watch it over and over again, like Misa and I have. Um, but you do get that sense of, like, that it is a rumor. And so, again, that's just the way that – I've taken it. Um, and it did take me until I watched it when I was older to kind of pick up on that. At first, I thought it was just like a random, you know, scenario or maybe something that he had done. And that's why he was saying it. Um, as I've gotten older and I've watched it through different, I guess, a different eyes, you know, different visions that um, you can see that she's uncomfortable because it does look like there's, you know, rumors about her, which is kind of the cost of being one of the popular kids, which Exactly. Brings us a little bit more background to how she's feeling from those stresses at school and things like that. Right. Um, so, okay. I'm glad you are on the same page as me because I've always wondered, like, like where is he getting these? Like, they're very specific mm-hmm. is what really gave it away for me was, like, where is he getting this from? Why do they have to be Calvin Klein jeans? Exactly. You know, which, you know, I'm guessing the Richies would wear in the 80s. So, you know, shit like that. So, Okay. So yeah, so this is where Andy defends her. And then I love this part because fucking love this part. So Andy defends her and uh, Bender's like, oh, you and how many of your friends? And Andy's like, me, just me. Two hits. I hit you, you hit the floor. And then he straight up takes Bender down. Like Bender doesn't crumble, but he gets taken down into like a submission hold. And Andy lets up because Bender's like, I don't want to get into this with you, man, because I'd kill you. And this is when Bender, like, he heads back toward, like, toward the back of the library, like, kind of by Allison's table. And he pulls out, like, a fucking switchblade, like, this fucking badass switchblade. I really want one just like it. (laughs) And so he pulls out the switchblade. And he, he turns to his side and he, like, stabs it into a chair. And this is great. Andy, (laughs) my favorite sight gag in the entire film <laughs> and he's like you don't talk to her you don't look at her and you don't even think about her the camera is on bender and you just see allison poke her head into the screen and she pokes her arms in she pokes the knife out of the chair and just like steals it and disappears out of frame it is the it best is <laughs> hilarious it is the best part. And this is what I'm saying. Like, I love Ali Sheedy in this film. She hasn't said much at all. And she's so funny. Her 
face, her reactions, her presence. It's so good. Like all these little moments really make you appreciate Allison. Yes, absolutely. That's one of the favorite scenes that I have with her in it. Cause like Misa said, she doesn't say anything. She just like uses both hands and like pulls it out and then like disappears back into her own little table. It's hilarious. I love it. It's so good. Um, and so then that's when Bender's like, Bender kind of backs off. He's like, I'm trying to help her. So then we get a little further into their uh, their time in detention. The clock is going slowly. And this is when we hear Waiting by E.G. Daly coming out of Carl, the janitor's headphones. And this is when Carl walks in. And Carl is going to look familiar because Carl is the one who was the man of the year in the picture at the beginning of the film. So um, for a really long time, up until recently, I always thought that that was like employee of the year, like man of the year. But it turns out the context is actually meant to say that he used to be at that high school. Yes. He used to be like a big man on campus. So Carl, the janitor, who is now the custodian at this high school that he went to, walks in. So he's listening to his headphones. You can hear him blasting from his, from his little Walkman. And um, as he's, like, emptying out one of the trash cans, he sees Brian in the library. And he's like, hey, Brian, how you doing? And Brian doesn't actually respond. Like, Brian actually kind of looks a little embarrassed that Carl acknowledged him uh, by name, especially. So Brian just kind of, like, he looks around... He kind of hopes nobody saw that or heard that, but obviously they did. And so Bender just kind of looks at him. He's like, your dad work here? <laughs> and then Brian just kind of gives him a look, like whatever. Um, and this is a very, very brief, brief clip of music. Uh, this is the very tail end of Waiting by E.G. Daly. Um, uh, but the, it, it does play right up until uh, Bender asks Carl, like, hey, Carl, can I ask you a question? And then his song switches to what Frankie will cover in a minute. <laughs> um, this is a really small clip. Uh, I don't, I, I'm not sure just how many people notice that this song is even in the film. Um, but part of the reason why I chose it is because I feel like this is actually a really important scene for Brian's character. Um, because uh, what we'll find later on in the movie, um, they start to question like how they're going to act around each other when school is back in session and they have to go back to normal. And Brian is worried that they won't be friends. Um, and he's worried that they won't acknowledge him in the hallway. And in a way, like, we kind of see Brian do that to Carl, which is really kind of fucked up. Like, yeah, he's a janitor. Yeah, he's just some guy who works at the school. I guess it's uncool to be friends with the staff. I don't know. But, like, Brian was very visibly, like, kind of embarrassed mm -hmm. by the fact that, like, the janitor of the high school and knows him by name and says hi like they're friendly you know um and then it, it was just especially driven when bender just kind of gave him shit about it um so i felt like that was kind of an important scene for what brian ends up saying and feeling later um but it is kind of fucked up that he blows carl off because carl kind of seems like a really good guy and obviously carl was a student at one time um, and so again, even though he's a very, very like small character and he's in the film for a very brief period of time, 
he too is someone who we can see at some point or another is struggling with or has struggled with his identity. You know, he went from being man of the year, his pictures on a placard in the hallway somewhere, you know, commemorating his greatness. And he's cleaning up after the kids who've come after him. You know, so it's um, it's a it's an interesting scene. Um, their interaction with him is really cool, which I know Frankie will cover in just a sec. But as far as the song that played when he walked in, that was "Waiting" by E.G. Daily. I didn't find a whole lot on the song, but I did find quite a bit about E.G. Daily. She's interesting. So the song is by a girl named E.G. Daily, who is also sometimes credited as Elizabeth Daily. And she is perhaps best known for being the voice of Tommy Pickles on Rugrats and Buttercup on the Powerpuff Girls. Uh, Some of her other notable work includes she was the voice of Froggy in the Little Rascals movie. She did Bam Bam in the Flintstones movie. And she did additional voices in a Goofy movie. Um, She played Candy in The Devil's Rejects, which... Frankie has covered during spooky season. Um, is she one of the chicks in the hotel that gets tortured? Uh, no, she's the um, main prostitute. Yeah, I think the first movie I ever saw her in was Valley Girl. She played yes. Lauren, like the shitty best friend. Um, but then, of course, she's also Dottie in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> so she's really notable. She's very recognizable. Like, if you see her, you'll be like, oh, yeah, that girl. Um, and of course she has voiced some of the characters that a lot of us grew up with. So there's a lot of adoration for her in that sense. Um, I also, you know, stumbled upon the fact that she, uh, was married from 1995 to 2000 to a not so famous, barely notorious poker player named Rick Salomon, the guy who did the Paris Hilton sex tape. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also married to Shannon Doherty, I think, and Pamela Anderson twice. So, uh, yeah, they have like two kids together. <laughs> um, so what, fun okay. fact, I actually follow her daughter on TikTok. <laughs> um, and her daughter does voices also. And her okay. daughter, um, like frequently has her mom come on and do like the different voiceover characters and do Tommy Pickles and everybody else. Um, because her daughter's still kind of up and coming in the voiceover, uh, world. So I, I love her. She's so cute and tiny and she does great little kind of squeaky, almost boy voices. She's really good at that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, I, I'm admittedly not a fan of the Rugrats, (gasps) and I really didn't watch Powerpuff Girls. Well, I didn't have cable as a kid. Okay. Okay. Like, all that Nickelodeon, all, like, the show, all that, literally, like, I I don't, I have no, I'm, I'm nothing. I didn't watch any of it. We had cable for a short period of time, and not until I was in, like, middle school, um, because my mom finished paying off her student loans, so (laughs) we had more money. Um... And so we had cable back then, and I, I've always loved the Rugrats. Like, I still remember the first day it premiered, and I love that. And I love the Powerpuff Girls. Sugar, spice, everything nice. <laughs> the Powerpuff Girls are watchable for sure, but it's not one of my background noise TV shows, if you know right. what I mean. Right. If that makes sense. Um but um, so, yeah, like I said, I didn't find a whole lot on the song because there literally is not a lot of information on the song aside from lyrics. Um, 
literally her work on the Breakfast Club soundtrack consists of one sentence on her Wikipedia page, and it says that she recorded Waiting for the Breakfast Club soundtrack. So um, right before appearing on the soundtrack, she worked with the Human League, which everybody knows fucking Don't You Want Me, Baby, that song. Don't you want me. (laughs) (laughs) That that one. And then um, to date, she has four albums out. Uh, spanning from the years 1985 to 2008. She has worked extensively in voice acting and television. She played Phoebe's ex-partner on Friends in one of the early seasons. I do remember that one, too. I don't remember that but one. Like Phoebe, Phoebe was like a duo with a girl, and then the girl, like, I think the girl had success, and Phoebe yes. and she came back. Okay, yes, it's yes. That's her. Um, and then she's also, of course, uh, She's also voiced these same characters on the video games, respectively. And then on top of that, various other video games, including Happy Feet and Skylander. Mm-hmm. So quite the portfolio. Um, there was, I mean, there really, I really wanted to find more on the song, but there wasn't. And much. I will just kind of preface that by saying a lot of the songs that are in the movie and in the soundtrack were specifically written by Keith Forsey. So there isn't a lot of information, which is why Misa and I are kind of heavily talking about the movie more so um, because there's not a whole bunch of facts about the songs. Um, basically, Keith watched them rehearsing, read the script, got to know the cast and everything a little bit, and then he wrote songs based off of that. So. So yeah, and like Misa said, um, my song comes right after that scene. Um, It's continuing to play on his Walkman um, as Carl's kind of emptying the trash and Bender's like, "Um, can I ask you something? And he's like, you know, Andrew is really interested in the janitorial arts and he's like oh you want to become a janitor what you think I'm some untouchable peasant and he goes on this rant about he's like you know what yeah I may have to clean up after y'all but I am the eyes and the ears of this institute and you know he goes on about that because you realize like he hears everything he sees everything he knows more about these kids than they realize I mean he's always there janitors work later hours than the kids they're there before they're there after and I mean, they're the ones who are called into everything. They're they're the wallflowers of the institution. And Carl is definitely playing on that. Um, and then as he starts to leave out, and of course, this whole time, Bender's smiling. Andrew's looking like very irritated with Bender. Um, and he's like, by the way, that clock is 20 minutes fast. And he rolls out. So the song that is playing right there is uh, Joyce Kennedy is the one who performed it. It is a song written by Keith Forsey, and it's called Didn't I Tell You? Um, And again, there's not a lot about her or the song. She is an artist. Um, She was raised in Chicago, actually. Um, She's best known by her stage name, which is Baby Jean. Um, She was in some different kind of like um, bluesy groups. And um, she was actually in a duet with an ex-Vondrells member named Glenn Murdoch. And they kind of went on tours around the country. So she did have a little bit of fame from there. And um, they married, actually, and started Mother's Finest in 1975, which was billed as the first black rock band, which I thought was really cool. 
Um, so she kind of went from like bluesy to rock, which is kind of a, you know, a normal drift between blues and rock music. Um, they did have a lot of different albums that were all critically acclaimed. Um, but she then kind of went on her own and she signed with a different record label in 1984. And that's when she started doing more of like the dancey kind of pop sounds. Um, she had a lot of singles led in the top 40 areas called The Last Time I Made Love, um, also including Stronger Than Before, Looking for Trouble, and Hold On for Love's Sake. She was approached by Keith to do this song, um, and she has a very she has a very raspy kind of like when you first listen to the song, there's parts where you're like, Oh, is this a girl? Because she does have a more manly voice, um, which I, I like that uniqueness in her voice. So I really like that they did this song. Um, and I like that Keith wasn't afraid to branch out to people who weren't like, you know, like uh, Whitney Houston of the time, you know, someone who's a smaller unknown, um, performer, if you will. So, um, again, not a whole lot on the song. Um, it did come out, um, April, 1985, like on its own promo disc, it had its own single, but it was just that song. She did not include this song on her albums because the song was written specifically for the film. So yeah. And that's all about, didn't I tell you? Can we fucking talk about lunch? Yes. <laughs> Can we please talk about their lunch? Oh my gosh. I think like the pretty much the first time I ever saw this movie, I think the lunch scene was immediately one of my favorites. I fucking love the lunch scene. <laughs> Which by the way, can we be honest though? They never actually have breakfast. They have lunch. Good point. Anyway, not the point, but yes, I'm okay. Just pointing that out. Um, fucking lunch, dude. Okay, so then we cut to like... Well, first Vernon comes in and he's like, all right, it says 1130. All right, girls, that's 30 minutes for lunch. He comes in and, you know, Andrew's like, I think the cafeteria would be a more suitable place. I don't care what you think, Andrew. <laughs> and then they start talking about the drinks and that's when they start to go. Um, he says, all right, well, we have some uh, soda machines up there. And Bender's like, oh, I'll go grab them. And he's like, not you. And then he chooses Andrew and we see him kind of motion to Claire, like for her to, for um, Vernon to tell Andrew and Claire to go get the drinks. And then he points at Allison. And this is one of my favorite parts with his interaction with Allison, because he doesn't know. He's like, Hey, Hey, you, what's her name? Wake, wake her up. Wake up, Missy on your feet. (laughs) (laughs) And again, evident, like he has no idea who this kid is. He doesn't know her name. He doesn't know anything about her. Um, and so he gives them, you know, the money, I guess, to go get drinks out of the soft drink machine. And so then we see Andrew and Allison walking in the hallway. Yeah. This, so this is um, it's pretty much the first time the group gets kind of split up, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So then, so Andy and Allison are going down the hall. And this is another scene where I was like, oh, my gosh, it's Frankie. Cause he, um, because he's like, oh, what's your poison? What do you drink? And she doesn't answer him at first. And then she's like, vodka. And <laughs> he's like, when do you drink vodka? She's like, whenever. And he's like, is that why you're here? Why are you here? She's like, why are you here? And then he starts giving her, like, a bullshit answer. He kind of basically repeats what his dad said. He's like, I'm here because I don't want to blow my ride. you know." And she's like, yeah, that's really interesting. 
now why don't you tell me why you're really here? And he's like, forget it. And he like walks off. So they come back and Claire and Andy are sitting at that front table. And Bender is also kind of sitting at the table with them. But he's like a little further away from them, but also between them. She has a little shopping bag. She's filling out her food. And he's like, what's in there? She's like, yes. Where's your lunch? And he's like, you're wearing it. She just kind of looks at him. Her face doesn't even change. She's like, you're nauseating. (laughs) (laughs) This whole exchange. And then uh, this is another, um, this is another like no dialogue part that I love. Bender fucking picks up a can of Coke and he just like tosses it. Allison catches it. And then she's like, she slams it down and she's like reading the back of a Prince album. It's so cute. I love this little moment between them. And so Claire has like sushi, which is weird because it hasn't been refrigerated this whole time. It hasn't. And you know, one of the fun facts I'm just going to plug in here, they actually wrote it for her to be eating pasta salad. Um, but then Ali Sheedy, who I guess just had some amazing ideas because she made a couple different changes in the script for John. Um, Ali was like, she should have sushi because that's like the uppity food of the time. And so... Yeah, so John went with it, and that's why she has sushi in there, which I think is definitely, it just solidifies just how uppity she is. Because, I mean, she has, like, the whole bento box and a little container for her soy sauce and, like, everything else, and everyone's just kind of like, who are you? Yeah, you're right. Like, it's it's definitely like a like an uppity kind of meal. Like, she, you know, it's all very perfectly planned out. Like, she literally could have just made a sandwich – they literally could have picked something up on the way, but she fucking brought sushi. Like, she was all extra about it. Yeah. <laughs> so even, like, their food is in tune with them as human beings. Um, but I fucking love Andy's <laughs> Andy's lunch. Andy's lunch cracks me up every fucking time. Can we please review what Andy has Oh, my gosh. He pulls out, like, this – okay, so back then, you know, they had the brown grocery bags, you know, the ones that you have to, like, special request now. Um, And he pulls out, like, three sandwiches, a family-sized bag of potato chips, not the little snack ones, an apple, a banana, a whole bag of cookies, and a carton of milk. And he just like, yes. and he almost has like a Mary Poppins moment where he like he's like, oh, I forgot this, and he like pulls more stuff out. <laughs> it is so funny, like, and these sandwiches are loaded, dude. Like, he has like three sandwiches in Ziploc bags, and these bags are like to capacity with this fucking yes. sandwich. Like, it's so thick, and like, I love how he like he pulls one out of the fucking bag, and Claire and Bender are just like looking at him. And, like, he pulls the sandwich out and, like, it already starts to fall apart because it's so packed. And he's like, what's your problem? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I want a sandwich right now so bad. But Allison's (laughs) is my favorite because hers is so weird. She, like, opens her sandwich and it's got, like, this weird, like, bologna. Pimento loaf? Yeah, like a pimento loaf. And she, like, tosses it up and it lands on the, you know, fancy sculpture that they have in the amazing Shermer High School library. And she, like, pulls her sleeves up and she's, like, opening up her soda and, like, you know, it's all shaken up. So she's doing all that. And then she, like, takes the pixie sticks and, like, pours the sugar all on top of her sandwich. And then she pulls captain crunch cereal out of i don't know where and like shoves it on top of her sandwich and then smushes them together and she 
is takes this huge bite and it's so loud and then she realizes everyone is staring at her and she just continues to chew loudly and it's just it's hilarious and just such a weird sandwich combo and I love everyone's face like they're they're confused they're kind of disgusted and they're just like what like it's so funny to watch them watch her eat like I love when she brings the sandwich up to her face and she kind of gives this look almost like she's she thinks that they think that she won't do it and then she just fucking takes a bite like (laughs) would you ever try a sandwich like that Okay, so here's my thing, though. I feel like there was mayo on her sandwich because there was meat on there, and that to me is disgusting. Now, would I try Pixie Stick Captain Crunch on bread with no mayo? Sure. Okay. The mayo throws me off. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. But, yeah. Um, Yeah, it it didn't look all that appetizing, but, man, it sounded crunchy as fuck. It really she was did. so loud. She was so loud. And then we get to Brian's lunch. Oh my gosh, he's so fucking cute. I love Brian. So Bender comes and sits with Brian. He's like, well, "What are we having?" He's like, "Oh, just your standard lunch, I guess." <laughs> so like Bender starts going through his shit. It's like soup, and it's like apple juice. I can read. <laughs> and Brian grabs for it, and Bender like slaps his hard. He slaps him like loud. And then you see like little carrots in a bag. He's like PB and J with the crust cut off. Well, Brian, this is a very nutritious lunch. All the food groups are represented. Did your mom marry Mr. Rogers? Uh, no, Mr. Johnson. <laughs> God damn it! Oh, that's a good film. <laughs> one of my favorite lines that is when I first saw this movie that line had me in tears so fucking uh no Mr. Johnson <laughs> god damn it <laughs> oh that's good shit <laughs> it really is it's hilarious it's such he's so like it's such an innocent line <laughs> I'm sorry it's just so good I'm I'm in tears again. It's goddamn hilarious. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go on. No, it's hilarious. It really is. I do want to say, I think the scene is one of my favorites, like you said, but it's also super interesting to me because, you know, eating is a social thing. And when you eat lunch in high school, you sit with your friends. And so, like, all the people who Claire would sit with would probably have a very similar lunch. All the people who Andrew would sit with would have a very similar jock lunch who are loading up, you know? Allison would eat, you know, with her weird people. Bender doesn't have food because of his home life, and so I'm sure he would be out doing something else with other people who are very similar. And I feel like, you know, smoking, which they say later on. Brian, you know, all-American family, has a nutritious lunch, and I feel like this scene, again, is just another way that John Hughes was able to approach the differences in our social classes, um, as well as just the differentiating between how we are in high school. I mean, I sat with my same friends all the time in our lunch group, you know what I mean? And I think it, it also it also kind of um, shows, as far as like the preparedness of their lunch, just how much like care and consideration they they put into their own selves like Brian's lunch was very organized 
you know, like his soup was perfectly secured in like a thermos who, by the way, who has a thermos anymore? No one. You know what I mean? Like I miss those lunchboxes that came with the thermos. I always used to get a lunchbox with a thermos. And now when I find a cute lunchbox, there's no thermos. And I'm like, what's the fucking point? You have to order a special on Amazon. Get the fuck away from me. So yeah. And then like Claire, who again, we said was very uppity with like her own little bento box and the little wooden pallet that it sat on and the little fucking thing for the soy And the chopsticks, everything. Yeah, exactly. And like, and then, and then Andy just kind of looks like he, they look like they went grocery shopping right before, or like they look like he just grabbed stuff from the pantry or some shit. Just like, again, very working class, blue collar, like, oh, sandwiches and bread, deli meat. Yeah, that's easy. Like, these characters already have such, like, layers that we're already kind of delving into. And even their food fucking says something about them. Um, it really gives a, kind of a, an interesting perspective of the whole, like, you are what you eat state oh of mind. Oh, my gosh. I never thought of that. And, yes, you're absolutely right. Like, he, this movie is just so thought out. And, I mean, I think that's why even taking the input from Allie – to change the pasta salad, which would be much more of like a, a middle-class meal, if you would, um, to sushi, like it just solidifies just how prestigious and uppity Claire is. And you're you're dead on. You are what you eat. Like you're literally, your food says so much about what you are, what your family is, your background, your money, everything. Yeah, perfectly said. Then this is when... <laughs> This is when Brian, uh, we see Brian's life acted out by Bender, which is great. It's a very leave it to beaver, like, son, (laughs) how's your day, pal? And he just kind of paints this picture of like Brian having a perfect home life. He, Mm -hmm. Brian has a very supportive father and a very loving mother. And they're both so proud of their son. Isn't he swell? He's swell. And, oh, we're going to go on a boat trip. And, oh, I have homework. You can do it on the boat. (laughs) And at first, it's kind of funny. Like, the other kids are kind of getting a kick out of it because Bender's just being, like, a class clown. And so he's just kind of busting up Brian a little bit. And then Andy kind of – Andy's face kind of changes. So – looking at this and again, just through different lenses and watching. So you kind of see Brian who is trying to save face and he's like kind of smiling, but you see that he's like upset that he's making fun of his family life. But then Bender also after doing this, remember he mimes like the, Oh, and the mother and father kissing. And then he punches the mom in the face. Like he makes that face. Um, And I think that's when they realize like, that's not funny. Like, why would you add like domestic abuse or something into the family? And that's when Andrew's like, all right, well, what's, what about your family? Um, and maybe he, it was genuinely interested to see like, you know, is, are you adding that in because that's what you're about or I don't know, but you do see Brian get a little bit uncomfortable and you do see Andy look at Brian who realizes Brian's uncomfortable with the situation. So that would be my take. Um, but it is it is kind of a lot for Bender to pantomime, you know, his parents punching one another, so. Yeah, and then, um, and like you said, like Brian's face does change because he's uncomfortable with kind of being called out and made fun of. But then you also kind of get like 
Brian, for a second there, he thinks it's funny too. Uh, at first, um, but then when you watch his face change, it makes me feel bad for Brian because it makes me wonder, like, is he kind of thinking to himself, like, oh, yeah, I wish it really were like that or, you know, oh, no, you couldn't be more wrong because obviously this is not an accurate portrayal of what his family is like. We met his mom. She was kind of a bitch. And so for Bender to just kind of make it seem like it's this fluffy happy really great situation at home and brian's just like you really couldn't be further from the truth and that kind of hurts him too like everyone thinks everything is perfect and that alone is adding to the pressure of being a high school student being a young adult uh becoming a human being um and being becoming in touch with yourself and coming into your own while struggling with your own identity so like it's you know it's it's kind of fucked up that Bender kind of busts him a little bit um but uh yeah like I've always kind of felt bad for Brian because he just kind of he looks really you know you this is a guy who you know gets teased a lot oh yeah yeah for sure and so Andrew you know says what about your family and Bender's like oh mine that's real easy and he stands up and goes back and he kind of like scruffs his face back and, you know, gets into his dad's voice and he starts stupid, worthless, no good, goddamn freeloading son of a bitch, retarded, big mouth, know-it-all asshole jerk. You forgot ugly, lazy, and disrespectful. Shut up, bitch. Go fix me a turkey pot pie. <laughs> It's so good the way he does his parents. Like, we never meet his parents, obviously. But the voices he has for them are so good. I imagine that's how they really sound. Oh, for sure. And then he's like, what about you, Dad? Fuck you. No, Dad. What about you? Fuck you. No, Dad. What about you? Fuck you. And then hits him in the face. And then that's when Brian's like, they're all kind of shocked. And Brian's like, is that for real? You want to come over sometime? <laughs> I love it. Sorry. I had a friend in high school who, like, she used to love that line. She thought it was a – that was, like, her favorite quote. Like, she loved the way he said it. Like, oh, you want to come over sometime? <laughs> like, yeah, go ahead. Come on, challenge them to see if they want to know if it's real. Yeah. Um, but then Andy straight up thinks that he's full of shit. And Andy's like, oh, that's bullshit. I don't believe a word of it. And Bender's like, you don't believe me? He's like, did I stutter? And then that's when Bender, like, he rolls up his sleeve and we see, like, his forearm. And he puts it right up against, like, Andy's ear, like, to make him look at it. And he's like, do you believe this? And we see it's like a circular kind of burn mark. Um, And Andy won't look directly at it, I think, because, you know, he's – it's being kind of thrown in his face, literally, that he's wrong. Um, And Bender says – it's about the size of a cigar. Do I stutter? See, this is what you get in my house when you spill paint in the garage. And this is when Bender is finally fucking done. Like, now that they, they've, you know, they've belittled him, they've been talking shit about him, he, you know, they've been meeting him on his shit whenever he gives them shit, and now they're trying to call him on something that he's actually being really honest about. Yeah, like opening himself up, being vulnerable. 
mm-hmm. for the first time, um, like with this particular group of people. And that's when he's like, all right, I'm fucking done. Like, that's when he's like, I don't think I need to sit with you fucking dildos anymore. And he just, like, wrecks, like, the fucking, he throws books. Like, there's chaos. He just starts screaming. And then that's when he, like, climbs the, like, fucking stairs. Um, And he just kind of sits on that second level. And he just, like, faces away from them. And, like, we never actually see Bender cry. He's the only one we never see cry in this movie. Yeah, but I think this is a moment where we come pretty close. Yeah, it's a, a just to get another example of a humanizing moment. Like, yeah, this kid has a tough outer shell, but why? Because his family sucks. Because he's being physically abused and verbally just abused on all levels. He gets shit at home and at school. You know what I mean? Like, he's one of those kids who's never told anything good about what he's doing he's always cut down he's always being told something's wrong with him and that's what created this tough outer shell like that's why he has to act like he doesn't give a shit anymore because he's been hurt so much that he actually doesn't give a shit anymore because what's the point and like I said when he's trying to open up and be vulnerable you know they don't believe him they disregard and like you said this is the closest we get to see him like very emotional about it you know like almost like why do I even try why do I try to get people to realize what my life is like they don't fucking believe me right no. or they don't care yeah or they don't care I just have if I can I want to segue into that modern family reference I know I sent it to you like last week there is this scene and it's it's perfectly articulated and um in, in this modern family episode so there's this episode of course me being modern family fan i have to throw this in um season nine there's this really hilarious episode where like it's like valentine's day but Mm -hmm. bill and claire end up babysitting joe and joe is claire's half brother and he's like five but he's in love with claire so when she's supposed to be babysitting him with phil like he ends up locking Phil out of the house and he tries to get Claire alone. So he like turns on the music and he's like laying on the couch. Like, like he's going to do He's like, Joe, what's going on? She comes in and she yells at him and then Phil gets in the house and he's like, oh, Casanova locked me out. <laughs> and then she's like, Joe, that's enough. Go to your room. And so she's, you know, she says she disciplines him. And then Joe gets off the couch and he's like, you're a bad valentine and then he like starts crying and he runs away and then like claire and phil just stand there and they're really quiet and they realize what just happened phil says i feel like the rest of the breakfast club when they realized judd nelson was more vulnerable than they thought (laughs) for those of you who don't know modern family phil is full of those fucking pop culture references he loves 80s movies. He loves cheesy horror. He loves Hall and Oates. Oh, I'm sorry. Daryl Hall and John Oates. Thank you. <laughs> he was a Hall raiser, guys. And so, like, <laughs> dude, like, I'm sorry. I have to throw that out as we talk about that moment with Bender. But yes, like, this is the closest that we really get to seeing Bender evoke some kind of emotion other than anger or toughness or just like that wall. We all know it's a wall. You know, we all know that he has layers, too. Um, So, yeah, it is really shitty that, like, for this one moment where he decided to just, like, he tried to be honest about where he comes from, and he tried to add a little humor to it, and then they just kind of called bullshit on it. And for the first time, perhaps all day, he's actually telling the truth. Um, 
And, you know, they say like, you know, they say with comedians, like all comedians are like actually in a lot of pain or like a lot of their jokes sound sad, but it's because they come from a sad place or like a lot of comedians are actually very sad, like Chris Farley was. Um, and so you kind of, you kind of get that impression with like, at least like the class clowns or like the kids who act up like Bender, who it's like, they're just kind of acting out because they are lacking in this or they're feeling this instead. Um, so, but it's a, it's a really great scene. His impressions of the parents are really funny. Um, but then, yeah, when they, when they take it too far and when they challenge him, um, that's when they start to realize like, okay, maybe Bender's not just this wall that we can throw things at. Right. And you see Claire kind of defend that. She's like, you know, you shouldn't have said that. And he's like, well, how was I supposed to know? He lies about any, everything anyway. So you do see like Andrew is kind of like regretful or remorseful for saying that after, but he doesn't get up and like go apologize to him or anything like that. You know what I mean? I don't think Bender would have accepted anyways. Um, but you know, there's that moment where he does realize like he, you know, crossed that line. So after this, like it does start off as a funny kind of humorous thing. And then it does get more intense. And then we go to Misa's, uh, you know, where she feels sad for Vernon who's eating lunch. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. And let me just, before we segue away, let me just say that like in what, in rewatching the movie, as, uh, now that I'm older, I guess, um, now I'm just kind of like, man, Bender fucking ruined that lunch. Like, now Andy's got to eat his three sandwiches while he's sad. And, like, nothing's going to taste as good. And, like, those cookies, like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, I get that they, they, they're assholes to you right now. But, man, you ruined the lunch. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. You ruined the lunch. <laughs> but then it just kind of, because then you got to think, like, a lot of the things that I started to wonder as I rewatched this movie again and again, I started to wonder a lot more about the scenes that we don't see. So, like, what did happen? So, Bender sat there on the staircase, and then everyone ate silently. And then at what point did he come back down? Who spoke first? Um, because between this scene and the scene I'm about to talk about, Claire learns John's name because she calls him John. But we never actually saw that moment. Uh, so at some point there had to have been like a, hey, sorry about what we said. By the way, what's your name? Um, you know what I mean? Like, it made me wonder what scenes we didn't see in the time lapses or what happened mm -hmm. or what was said. Um, you can kind of make it up in your head with the context you get from the movie. But it really made me wonder, like, who broke the ice? Did anyone apologize? Um, because the next thing we know, yeah, Vernon is eating lunch. He's got sandwiches. He's got an orange. Uh, it's a like, nice little standard lunch. And then he tries to pour his coffee, and it spills everywhere. And it's, like, chunky. <laughs> it looks like mud. And it gets all over his food. And, like, all he had in his mouth was, like, an orange slice. And I just, the look on his face is so defeated. <laughs> like, oh, what next? Um, I just feel so bad for him. Uh, so then he leaves his office, and that's when the group, like, poke out of the library. And they watch him walk away around the corner. And they're going together to Bender's locker. So somewhere between him freaking out on them and this, he recruited them to go with him to his locker, right? 
So they're walking through the hallway, and Brian's like, why are we going to soccer? Why are, why are we risking getting in trouble? What are we doing this for? What are we going for? And Andy's like, if you ask me one more question, I'm fucking the shit out of you. <laughs> so we go to Bender's locker, and when he opens it, his locker is, like, rigged so where, like, the noose comes down and the guillotine, like, would presumably chop someone's hand off if they tried to reach in. Um, and so, <laughs> like, Andy calls, like, oh, you're such a slob. And Bender's like, my maid's on vacation. So then Bender just starts going through these layers of brown paper bags, bag after bag after bag, until finally he gets to his little sack of weed. <laughs> and Brian's like, it's marijuana. That was marijuana. Do you approve of this? <laughs> and it's so funny because Allison's in the back of the corner and her mouth is like open. <laughs> yeah, like she's shocked. Brian's shocked. Claire is like shocked but intrigued. Mm-hmm. Very like, hmm. Okay. And then Andy's like, yeah, he's like, no way, Bender, put it back. Like, he doesn't want to be caught with Bender and weed. He doesn't want to be anywhere near it, whatever. Like, Andy really needs to, because, I mean, because Andy is Andy. So he's not trying to get in trouble. Um, but Bender's just like, whatever. So he walks off. And this is, uh, this is when they're trying to head back into the library. And so I'm not quite sure, guys, how this school is set up. If someone wants to figure out, like, <laughs> the map of Shermer High School for the sake of this montage, I would really appreciate your hard work. But again, I'm not asking anyone to do that because I think you'll just go insane. Um, but th this is a really weird montage because like the school must be big. There are thousands of hallways and the, the corners are like blind spots, evidently. Right. So um, at this point, um, the five of them are trying to get back to the library, and as they're walking, they see Vernon walking around in the hallway, too. And then, and then they start to run. This is one of my favorite parts of the beginning, where like they just run one way, and then Vernon turns left. And then they all run the other way because he went that way. And Allison is just like leaning up against the lockers, just watching them. So then they're like <laughs> running and then they slide from behind a corner. But then I guess they see him again. So they run back behind the corner. Uh, so just everywhere they go, they see him. And then they see like everywhere they go, they see him. So they keep turning these different corners and there's Vernon and there's Vernon. But he's always somehow got like his back to them or he's like taking a drink of water or he's preoccupied with something. And so he doesn't quite see them in time, but they manage to slip out of his view before he can turn around. So there's all these moments where like he barely, barely misses them. Um, and it's, there's a lot of weird corners in this school. Um, and like even like when I watched the DVD with commentary on it, like even Anthony Michael Hall said like this was a very like mc escher kind of painting he did the relativity painting he he compared this to that because there's just like a bunch of stairs and a bunch of corners but like they lead to everywhere nowhere at the same time and vernon could never find them um so it's very like it's also reminiscent of like like a scooby-doo it's exactly what i was thinking of <laughs> it's so because it's ridiculous in some of these parts vernon should have seen them like or like, heard them <laughs> Something like that, like even like, and that's, I was going to get to that too, because um, eventually like they're running, they're running, and then they go down the stairs and then they stop because they can't decide which way to go. Hey, 
Um, so then they stop, and then um, Bender's like, we got to go through the cafeteria. Andy's like, no, the activities hall. He's like, you don't know what you're talking about. And Andy's like, no, we're through listening to you. We're going this way. And so, like, Andy runs off, and Claire and Brian follow him because they think he knows what he's talking about. And so then, like, Bender doesn't go right away, but then, like, Allison is just, like, kind of – she's like, okay, well, we got to go somewhere, you know? So they go down more stairs. And then finally they hit the fucking gate and they're cut off and they can't go any further. Um, so the song that played during that awesome montage, which on commentary, Anthony Michael Hall called it the 80s montage music. Um, <laughs> so that song was Fire in the Twilight by Wang Chung. Um, so they are an English new wave band that formed after a man named Nick Feldman who would become the guitarist, put out an ad for a musician in a music magazine, and Jack Hughes, which is not his real name, answered. Jack Hughes would eventually become the vocalist and the guitarist for Wang Chung. At the start of their career as a band, they were known as Huang Chung, H-U-A-N-G, which means yellow bell in Chinese. It wasn't until the early 80s that they changed it to Wang Chung, W-A-N-G, because too many people were mistakenly pronouncing it as Hung Chung. <laughs> so before appearing on the soundtrack, they had garnered some attention, but not a whole lot of success. Their second album, Points on the Curve, gave us the songs Don't Let Go and Dance Hall Days. And with the success that they received from that album, they went on to tour with The Cars and The Romantics, respectively. And then after their second album is when they did a lot of soundtrack work, including the music for William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. So the soundtrack album for that film is technically their third album. So if you go to Spotify or like their catalog, it's the To Live and Die in L.A. soundtrack, but it's also like on their discography. Um, And around this same time is when they recorded Fire in the Twilight for The Breakfast Club, written, of course, by Keith Forsey. Um, As of right now, Wang Chung are still active. The current lineup includes Jack Hughes and Nick Feldman. When I first saw this movie, this is when this montage started, when that all that 80s goodness began and all the chaos and the running. Like, that's when I was like, I love this movie. That was that solidified it. Everything else could have been downhill from there. And I would not have cared. Like everything up to that part was so good that I was like, yeah. It's yeah, it's already in my collection. Like it was, I loved this movie from the moment that song started. So it's a great um, song. Um, and again, this is another uh, part that, like, when I first watched it, it was really interesting to me that like they stuck together. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to me that they were getting along again. Um, you know, however briefly and for whatever reason. Um, but you know, after such a, an explosive scene when they had lunch, like. It really made me, that again, made me wonder what happened in the part that we didn't see. But also it was like, um, maybe it was their way of making it up to him. I don't know. Like, I, it's interesting to see, like, even though they are still so different and they each have their own kind of individual stances, like, they still have these moments of togetherness. They still have these moments of unity. Yeah, which actually comes up for the next scene because after they get trapped at the gate, remember, then uh, Bender's like, ugh, just me. I'll Y'all go back to the library. And he sticks his weed down Brian's underwear, who was – Brian was obviously like, do you approve of this? That's marijuana. 
it's marijuana, like freaking out. <laughs> and then we see Bender run off singing um, the I Want to Be an Airborne Ranger song and like tearing posters off. And then we see Vernon hears him. He's like, that son of a bitch. And then he starts running around to this obviously huge four-floored high school <laughs> and finds Bender playing basketball in the gym. And uh, we then see, you know, <laughs> this part always cracked me up. He's like, I was thinking of going off with scholarship. <laughs> I love the gym scene too. Like, the, um, so he finds him at the gym. He's like fucking around with basketball. And he's like, come on, Bender, let's, let's go. It's over. Um, and I read that Judd Nelson did that scene differently every time just to keep Paul Gleason on his toes. So, like, by the time that take that they, I guess, kept in the movie, like, Paul Gleason was just kind of really annoyed at that point. <laughs> he, like, kicks the basketball and shit, like, um, which I think is a perfect tactic, um, especially to play, play on, like, a teacher character. <laughs> yeah, it's because he acts like he's going to throw it at him, and then he actually rolls it to him. <laughs> yeah, that part's hilarious. So then, like, so we take him back to the library, and that's when he's going to, like, separate him. Mm-hmm. from the rest of the group um and he roasts bender like really badly in front of everybody at this part um he just kind of like at one point like bender laughs or like bender says something and andy laughs and he's like oh you think he's funny you think he's bitching why don't you go find him in five years you'll see how funny he is vernon is suggesting that like bender might be homeless or like on drugs or, like, just some kind of fucked up member of society or, you know, in jail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, like, Vernon does not expect a lot from Bender at all. Nope. And then that's when we see Bender get, like, really mad. Like, Vernon grabs his shoulders. He's like, keep your fucking hands off me. I expect better manners from you, dick. And, you know, then he walks out in true Bender fashion and gives his sunglasses to Andrew for better hallway vision. <laughs> And this is when he locks him in the closet, which is so bizarre to me. And he straight up, like, threatens him. This is a really intense scene. It's kind of difficult to watch, too. Um, This is probably Vernon at his worst in the movie. This is the part where, like, you kind of forget that Vernon's a human. Vernon is an asshole. And he's just like, oh, that's the last time you humiliate me in front of those kids. Um, and he starts, he doesn't necessarily brag, but he basically says like, you know, he has a particular status and he's not going to throw it away on some shithead like Bender. And then he takes his coat off and he's like, come on, let's on your feet, pal. I want to know how tough you are right now. I want to know how tough you are. And he challenges him to hit him. And Bender doesn't do anything like behind closed doors when it's all said and done and nobody's watching. Bender doesn't necessarily, again, doesn't crumble. But he doesn't live up to all that hype. After he does all. flinch, though. Like yes. he does think that Vernon's actually gonna hit him, and he flinches. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and you're right. Vernon kind of goes on this tangent. This is my least favorite Vernon part. Like I, I do not like him when he's one on one with Bender. Um, because I mean, he tells him he's a sack of shit. Like, and I mean, it's obvious when he's talking about his family. Like he knows his family sucks. Um. And yet he's telling him, like, you're a liar, everyone loves me, no one cares about you. Like, it's a horrible thing to say to a kid. So, and then Vernon calls him, he's like, that's what I thought, you're a gutless turd. And he walks out and, like Misa said, locks him in the closet. 
which is so inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, of course, Bender, he manages to sneak out of the closet, and he makes his way back to the library through the ceiling. Um, and he tells a joke with no punchline. <laughs> so, which... I was interested to see just if anyone had an answer or a response for this joke. I was going to ask you if you could make up one right now on the spot. Oh, on the spot? No, but I found one. <laughs> okay. Let's so he says, a naked blonde walks into a bar with a poodle under one arm and a two-foot salami under the other. She lays the poodle on the table. Bartender says, I suppose you won't be needing a drink. The naked lady says, and then he screams, oh, shit, because he falls through the crawl space that he's um, in, in the ceiling. So I just have always wondered, like, what was the rest of the joke? I know that John Hughes says there was no punchline. And actually, Jed Nelson made that joke up, like, mm -hmm. on the spot. So this is just what someone would have said the joke was. And I found this on one of those many, many Reddit pages. Um, and they said, the blonde says, I definitely do after what just happened to me. The bartender says, I'm so sorry, what happened? The blonde says, well, my boyfriend and I were just about to make love when out of nowhere, the crazy bastard says, I'm going to pound my favorite bitch with my giant sausage. So I grabbed them both and got the hell out of there. And that's the best that I could find, <laughs> which would be why she has the poodle and the sausage. <laughs> Interesting. Because then I also read that they tried to make it to where they tried to come up with a joke that had the punchline, I forgot my pencil, which is what he says when he gets downstairs. Yes. So I've always tried to, in my head, I guess ideally that the bar joke and forgot my pencil would be the same one. So I'm like, but I don't, like, I figure it would go like a sex joke direction because she's naked and she's a blonde and she walked into a bar. <laughs> um, but I've never actually like sat down and created one. We should do that. Yeah, we should. Um, yeah, you're right, though. They originally just wanted him to um, do the I forgot my pencil uh, as he crawled through, but he couldn't think of anything. So that's why he came up with that joke. So, yeah, yeah as he falls through the ceiling, of course, Vernon hears and he's like, oh, my God, what was what was what in God's name is going on in here? What was this ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? <laughs> I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Did you describe the ruckus, sir? You watch it, young man. Watch it. <laughs> so it turns out like Bender tucked himself underneath Claire's table, Claire and Andy's table. And so like, I guess he tries to sit up and he like whacks his head on the bottom of the desk. So you hear like, thunk, ah. <laughs> and then Andy like like taps on the table and like Allison like stumps her feet like they all kind of make noise to play it off this is one of my favorite other parts <laughs> Vernon's like what is that and Andy goes what <laughs> yes and Vernon's like what what is what is that what is that noise what is, what's going on he's like what are y'all on what is going on <laughs> hilarious and then this is when Claire's like sir there wasn't any noise and like Bender this is this is kind of the complicated scene, I guess now nowadays. But um, Bender like he sees her underwear because he's like kind of taking a peek between her knees. He sticks his head between her knees, and she, she feels it, and she's like noise, and like right when she says it, I guess she like crunches his head or so. Like I always got the feeling like he stuck his head between her knees to try to get it in there, and she crunched his head before he could get further. He moans out in pain, and that's when they all start coughing. It's like, <laughs> was that the noise? Was that the noise? He's like, no, it wasn't. 
that's not the noise I was talking about. Um, it's just, it's just funny. And again, another one of the moments where like, there's that unity, you know, like Bender is someone who can get them all in trouble, but they're covering for him anyway. Uh, Bender is someone who hasn't been all that likable uh, from their perspective, uh, but they're still trying to protect him from the common evil, which again mm-hmm. is Vernon. Um, so it's just kind of funny to see them fuck with him. <laughs> and then Vernon's like, I, I may not have caught you in the act this time, but you can bet I will. And Allison's like, uh, like, yeah. yeah okay. And he's like, you make fuck on that, Missy. <laughs> I love his face. <laughs> He's like, I will not be made a fool of. And he turns around and he has a toilet seat cover stuck in the back of his pants. Yes. Oh, my God. It's so funny. And then, like, so they all crack up when he leaves. And then Claire whacks Bender a couple times. And he's like, it was an accident. And she's like, you're an asshole. And he's like, sue me. And then they all get high. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they all kind of like, you see Bender go off and like Andrew's like, you're not going to blaze up in here. And then you kind of see them all wait. And then Claire gets up and goes after him. And then Brian does. And then finally Andrew's like, shit, and gets up too. And then we see, uh, we kind of see Vernon, they cut to like Vernon going down the stairs to the basement. We see him go into the basement. Um, And then it comes back up to Brian, Bender, and Claire in a circle, like sitting on one of the library couches, I guess. And they're like laughing hysterically. Um, They're all smoking. And uh, Brian is hysterical during this part. Chicks cannot hold a smoke. Best word to use. (laughs) <laughs> and he's like tries to eat the smoke clouds yes. and then claire's just like do you know how popular i am she's, she's like i am so popular everybody loves me so much this is cool <laughs> and it's just so and bender's just laughing at her like mm. one of the things that i i love about this part chad nelson's mouth um just like the way he like clicks his tongue when he's like watching her smoke, he's so. Mm, he was scrumptious in this movie. Exactly. Um, and so, like, yeah, so, like, it's, it's funny to see Claire just kind of like going on a little, like, me tangent. Um, you know, one thing that I, I, at least in my experience, I feel like a lot of um, not frequent smokers who smoke get really honest if they get talkative. And mm-hmm. so that's just her kind of being like, oh, doesn't everybody love me? Like she's kind of not necessarily rubbing it in that everybody loves her, but she's just kind of like blabbing about it because it makes her feel good. Um, so it's it's really funny to see them all stoned. Yeah. And then uh, we see Andy, who I guess like decided to smoke on his own and he smoked in like a different room. Um, yeah. And he comes out like the whole room is smoky. Like it's crazy. Um, and then he opens the door and starts dancing and everyone's watching him and then he goes back in and like screams as he and the whole glass door shatters it's a really so 80s. it's so 80s interesting crazy moment um so while 
all of our, you know, wonderful Breakfast Club friends are getting high, uh, the camera does go back down to Vernon, who's going through files in the basement. And this is where we kind of see him and Carl's conversation start to unfold about him going through the confidential files. And Carl's like, you know, what are you doing? He's like, you know, this is a, this is a really sensitive matter. You know, um, certain people would be very, very embarrassed. Uh, so I would appreciate it if, uh, if, if this was something that, you know, you and I could, you know, keep between us. And Carl's like, well, what are you gonna do for me, man? And Vernon's like, well, what would you like? And Carl's like 50 bucks. <laughs> and Vernon's like, what? And Carl's like, yeah, 50 bucks. And, um, I always thought the scene was really random, but then I like upon researching, I realized, um, so John actually had Carl say that before it was, it wasn't in the script. So, you know, Vernon had his lines and Carl actually just kind of cut him off with like, what are you going to do for me and added it in. So the real face of Vernon being like, what is his actual Paul Gleason's face? Because that's really like his reaction to being cut off and like not understanding what was going on with the lines and everything. And I thought that was interesting. Um, I actually saw an interview with John Capellos, who plays Carl. Mm -hmm. And he's like, because like, because uh, Gleason didn't know that he was going to interrupt him. Gleason actually got kind of pissed off after that take because he wasn't expecting it. He thought that like Carl had made a choice. Um, and so he didn't take kindly to it at first, but when <laughs> he realized that like for the sake of the joke and for the sake of, you know, whatever um, it was okay. But that at first, like with the way John Capello's talked about it, he was kind of vague. It sounded like he, you know, he'd really upset him. Um, oh. But it worked in the movie. It's hilarious. It it's is. Just, what of all things like you can literally get me in so much trouble and you can literally ask for anything right now and you want right talk. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny so then we go back to our friends who are still smoking and now we see Andrew and Brian together and Allison is finally joining in on the group she's the only one who doesn't appear to have smoked with anyone and she comes around the back of the library and it's kind of listening to Andrew and Brian. He's like, you got a middle name? He's like, yeah, I guess. And then Alan's is like, your middle name is Ralph, as in puke. Your birthday is March 12th. You're five, nine and a half. You weigh 130 pounds. And your social security number is 04938091. And they're just all looking at her like, how do you know that? And then Andrew's like, are you a psychic? And then she's like, mm, I stole your wallet. And Brian's like, not impressed that she stole his wallet. Like, oh, so you're a thief too. She's like, I'm not a thief. And um, Andrew kind of like tells her like he's she's multi-talented. And she's like, yeah, what is there still besides two bucks and a beaver shot? He's like, what? She's like, there's a nudie picture in there. I saw it. It's perverted. <laughs> All right, let's see it. I love that line, how she says it. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, and then after that, that's when we cut to, like, Claire and Bender, right? Mm -hmm. And he's fucking brushing his teeth with her, like, eyebrow brush. Yes. I don't know what that thing is. I guess it's an eyebrow brush. It separates your lashes. Oh, okay. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, that thing. I thought it was just to groom your eyebrows. It's for both. So you can do this and then you can brush them over. Yeah. But now oh, they have it. No, it's not for teeth, which is hilarious. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you. Well, what's it called? I don't even know what it is. Um, 
I guess it would just be called like a a brow brush. Brow brush. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So he's so he's brushing his teeth with her like brow brush, and she's looking through his wallet. That's because that's the comfort level we're at now. And she's like, "Are all these your girlfriends?" And he's like, "Some of them." And he's just going through her shit. He's spraying her whatever she's got. Like her purse is basically dumped out in front of him. He's just kind of toying with like all her little accessories, I guess. And um, and he's like, some of them I just consider. And she's like, consider what? He's like, whether or not I want to hang out with them. Um, and she's like, well, you don't believe in one guy, one girl. He's like, no. Do you? And she's like, yeah, it's the way it should be. And then like she's like, she's like, how can you have so many girlfriends? He's like, how can you have so much shit in your purse? <laughs> Um, and she's like, I don't know, I guess I never threw anything away. And he's like, well, neither do I. (laughs) And she's like, okay. (laughs) Yeah, her Um, face is like, uh, all right. (laughs) Never fucking mind. (laughs) Um, then we see, like, um, Andrew, Brian, and, yeah, Andrew, Brian, and Allison, and, like, um, Andrew's looking at Brian's fake ID and he's like this is the worst one and he's like why do you have fake ID anyways he's like so I can vote oh. <laughs> you realize you made yourself 68 <laughs> and she's like Allison's like do you want to see what's in my bag no <laughs> but then she dumps it anyway and it's, she's got all this shit she's got like fucking tampons mm-hmm. got a month's supply of tampons <laughs> uh, yeah a good chunk She's got like shit in there, like a bunch of shit in there. Like, I do you always carry this much shit in your bag? Yes, I always carry this much shit in my bag. <laughs> and so she basically sits there and confesses, like, you know, you never know when you need a jam. Like, my home life is unsatisfying. And so she's pretty much prepared to get up and go whenever the time comes. Mm-hmm. Which is a really, really sad situation when you think about it. Um, like she literally brings that bag with her everywhere. You can presume that she wears it all the time at school. Um, at any given moment, she could just take off because that's what she wants to do. Um, and so Brian and Andy don't really respond very well to this. After, like Nisa said, she says that her home life is unsatisfying. And then she's like, you know, eat shit. She gets up and walks away. Um, and Brian's like, this girl is an island with herself. And, you know, Andy gets up, goes after her, and he's like, do you want to talk? And she's like, no. And he's like, why not? And she's like, go away. Um, and then she's like, you have problems. He's like, oh, I have problems? I'm not the one who just dumped out my whole purse and, like, invited everyone into my problems. And he's like, what's wrong? Is it real bad, your parents? And this is when she's silently crying. Um, so we do see, like, the more emotional side to her. And she's like, what do they do to you? And they ignore me. And Andrew's just like, yeah, like I get it. Like there's a moment where they like really get each other because while the ignoring is not necessarily the same, like Andrew's family ignores him about like his desires. Like there was no question about whether he was going to be an athlete. He was born to be an athlete and he's going to be number one always. Like they're ignoring what he wants and putting on what they want. For Allison, it seems like they just don't even recognize that she exists. And we see that when, you know, she tries to go up to the window and they just drive away. Um, so then this is a moment where we both see them kind of have an emotional connection. Um, I wouldn't say that Andy is crying here, but he does kind of have his eyes watering. Um, 
And then after this emotional scene, this is when we see Vernon and Carl in the basement and they're sitting and they're talking and they are drinking. And, you know, Vernon's like, what did you want to be when you were younger? He's like, when I was a kid, I wanted to be John Lennon. And Vernon's like, don't be a goof. Like, I'm trying to be serious. You know, I've been teaching like music for 22 years. And these kids, they just get more and more arrogant. And that's when Carl's like, that's bullshit. And like, come on. Like, you know that the kids didn't change. You changed. Like, you took this job because you thought it would be fun. You'd have summers off. And then you realize just how much work it really is. And that bummed you out. And it's true. A lot of people think teaching is an easy job. It's not. And it, I think it's a really power. Now that I know that Carl, now that it's been clarified at least, that Carl was a student at this school and now he's become the custodian and he's sitting there, of all people, having this conversation with Vernon, I think it, it really adds to the like heaviness mm-hmm. that a former student that obviously was there when Vernon was there um, is telling him this, like, dude, like, trust me, I went through the hallways of this school. Yeah. You're the one who's the problem. You know, the kids are going to come and go, but you, you know, you're going to be here. Mm-hmm. It's what you wanted. It's you went into, you know, no one goes into a teaching career because they didn't have anything better to do. They yeah. go into a teaching career because they want to change student lives and they want to be a part of the education system. They want to better the education system and they, as an individual, have a way of doing that. And so for it to come from someone like Carl, who obviously, you know, from the context of it, you can tell like had experiences with Vernon and who went to that school and who was under Vernon's thumb at some point too. If someone like him can see it, then yeah, I think I think this is and this is one of the last scenes we get with Vernon. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the last things that we actually really um, kind of learn about him, um, and it kind of explains all the moments before in this movie. It's, it explains why he's so bitter and why he's yeah. so tough on them. It's because he's just kind of done with their shit. It's a lot like Bender. Bender's kind of done with people's shit, and now he doesn't give a fuck. They're more like each other than they thought, and Very that's why true. they're they heads. Exactly. And I do think Carl calls Vernon out because he's like, what would you think of yourself if you were 16? And then he's like, you know, uh, Vernon's like, you think I give a rat's ass what these kids think of me? And Carl's like, I do. I do think you care. And then he's like, you know, these kids are going to be running the country. Um, And Vernon's like, you know, these kids are going to have to take care of me. And Carl's like, I wouldn't count on it. Like, they're not going to take care of you. What have you done? Like he's, he really calls him out and makes him realize. And you see Vernon kind of sit there and think about that statement for a little bit, um, which I feel like he also does at the end of the movie when we talk about that with him reading the paper, like his reaction to that also. I feel those are very much like almost pivotal moments for him, like in his character, um, realizing, you know, like there are some things that I, I could change or I do need to change, or maybe education isn't what I need to be doing anymore is what I would hope would happen. Right. Or at least that it would give him um, a fresh outlook. Yeah. Or at least a renewed outlook because obviously he had a passion for it at some point. Definitely. Um, And it can, if he just, if he tried a little more patience and understanding and like you said, like the relationships with your kids, like he could still flourish as an educator. He could still gain their respect. He's just right now going about it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And he's and I think by the end of the movie, yeah, you're right. Like he does realize that. Um, 
So it's, again, another reason, like, yeah, Vernon is the antagonist, but, you know, he he goes through his shit, too, and we see it. So um, Paul Gleason is just, oh, he's so good in this one. I, I can't imagine it being anyone else, you Me know? Me either. Me either. Okay. And then we come to probably one of the most just raw emotional moments in the movie. Um, and this is where we see all of them sitting on the floor together. And, you know, obviously all of them are high except for Allison. And, um, you know, they're talking about like, what would you do for a million bucks? And he's like, well, I guess I'd have to do as little as if I had to. Andy says, you know, and then they have this conversation. Claire's like, no, 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 like choose something like the absolute limit. Like, would you drive to school naked? Um, And at first, you know, they're the only ones who are talking. And then, um, then the other ones jump in and they kind of go over this question and Andrew's like, no, I, I, I drive to school naked, you know, like in the back of the school, like they're trying to choose. And then Allison's like, I would do that. I would do anything sexual. I don't need a million dollars to do it. And Claire's like, you're lying. And Allison's like, I already have, I've done everything except for a few things that are illegal, which is crazy. (laughs) I'm an infomaniac. I'm sorry. I have to add that crazy in there because there's a lot. And if she was only 16, that's a problem. Right? <laughs> right? Well, I mean, yeah, but then again, you have to keep in mind she's also a compulsive liar. Right, which we learn in just a second. <laughs> but I mean, so it's like lie. And then this is when Brian's like, uh, uh, he's just, you know, astonished. Are your parents aware of this? <laughs> And she's like, the only person I told was my shrink. And what did he do when you told him? He nailed me. <laughs> the way she says that line, ah, oh, so good. And then this is, she's like, you know, I paid him, so it's not rape. And like Claire's like, you're, an, he's an adult, and she's just like completely disgusted. And Claire's like, this is just, that's so gross. And Allison's talking about like, well, the first few times, you mean like you did it more than once. And then Claire's like, are you crazy? Like, Claire can't believe this. And then Allison's like, well, have you ever done it? And Claire's like, I don't even have a psychiatrist. (laughs) And Allison's like, have you ever done it with a normal person? And she's like, well, didn't we already cover this? And Bender's like, you never answered the question. And she's like, I'm not going to discuss my private life with total strangers. And this is when Allison, like, brings out that double-edged sword. Like, if you're a girl and you're this age, like if you haven't, then you're a prude. But if you have, then you're a slut. Like, what do you do? You know? And Claire's like arguing back with her and Allison's calling her a tease. And Andrew and all of them are like, yeah, you're a tease and you know it. And she's like, just answer the question. And then all of them are like, just answer the question, Claire. And she's like, no, I never did it. And screams out. And then Allison kind of smiles and she's like, I never did it either. I'm not an nymphomaniac. I'm a compulsive. <laughs> You're such a bitch. And then Allison's just like, I would do it though. If you love someone, it's okay. And then Claire's just like, You're so weird. Like, you don't talk all day. And then you just unload these like lies all over me. And Andrew's like, You're just pissed because she got you to admit something you didn't want to. And she like, Claire calls her bizarre. And then Andrew's like, what's bizarre? We're all pretty bizarre. You know, some of us are just better at hiding it. That's all. And Claire's like, well, fine. How are you bizarre? And Allison's like, he can't think for himself. She's like, she's right. And then this is when we get kind of Andrew's more emotional side. We saw him tear up a little bit. He starts talking about why he is in there. Um, And it turns out that he taped um, someone's 
Larry Lester's. Larry Lester's buns together. So like with his sporting tape, like taped his skin together. Um, and he kind of says, you know, like that I did it. He did it for his dad, like that his dad is kind of always on him about like how he did wild things in school and like how he was he kind of got the feeling that his dad was disappointed that he's never like cut loose on anyone. And, you know, and he sat there and like, he gets really upset. And he's like, you know, I just think about Larry and like how his dad, like, must've been so humiliated for him, like the fucking humiliation he must've felt. felt. And then he starts crying and he's like, how do you apologize for something like that? And it's such a, it's such a humbling moment for him because he has been kind of like an asshole or you know says what he wants or does what he wants because he's got that like athlete kind of macho mentality but then you do see that softer side like you know I did mess up and I want to apologize but I don't know how and then he talks about how he hates his dad and you know he's like he's like this crazy machine where he just tells Andrew like you have to win like you have to be number one I won't tolerate any losers in this family your intensity is for shit win 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 and then just starts like crying and he's like admits like you know I I wish my knee would give and I wouldn't have to wrestle anymore and it's sad that because I mean if Andy does love that and he's willing to give up something that he loves just so he doesn't have to deal with his dad's shit like this is just another really vulnerable moment and Bender kind of jokingly says, like, I think your old man and my old man should get together and go bowling. <laughs> and then, yes. And then, um, yeah, so that's – Emilio Estevez does such a good job in this mm-hmm. scene. Like, And the camera pan, it's just all him. It's just all one shot as he's talking about, like, what he did to the kid and how he hates his father. And that one line that he says about his father, he says, he's like a mindless machine that I can't even relate to anymore. Like – you see kind of Bender's reaction to that because Bender kind of feels the same about his dad. Mm-hmm. And then and then that's when Brian kind of chimes in. He's like, oh, it's like me with my grades. Um, you know, Brian's been a straight-A student pretty much all his life. He admits, like, he's in there because he he's failing shop. And this kind of gets Bender's attention. And Brian's like, <laughs> Brian's like, yeah, I'm taking a shop, you know, I thought it'd be easy. He's like, oh man, I'll take a shop. It'd be a really easy way to keep my grade point average up. And Bender's like, why do you think it'd be easy? And Brian's like, have you seen some of the dopes that take shop? And Bender's like, I take shop. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, so like Brian explained the project, which was basically like they were supposed to make like a ceramic lamp and it's supposed to be like an elephant. And when mm-hmm. you pull the trunk, the lamp's supposed to turn on, but my lamp didn't turn on. I got an F on it. And so then, so Bender's like, you must be a fucking idiot. <laughs> I'm a fucking idiot because I can't make a lamp. Nah, you're a genius because you can't make a lamp. What do you know about trigonometry? I could care less about trigonometry. Bender, did you know without trigonometry, there'd be no engineering? Without lamps, there'd be no light. That's <laughs> such a good line. <laughs> it's such a hilarious fucking exchange. It like, is. Without lamps, there'd be no light. Bender getting philosophical on his ass. Like, it's so fucking funny. There'd be no light. He's so angry. He is. He's pissed. Because, like, that's the one thing that he is probably good at. You know what I mean? And here, Brian is ragging on it. And then Claire kind of intervenes. And she's like, so neither one of you is better than the other. And then you see Allison kind of jump in with, like, her weirdness. And, like, I can write with my toes. Just, like those random facts and she starts talking about like I can also eat and brush my teeth and Claire's like with your feet I can play on the piano 
<laughs> Brian's like, I can make spaghetti. And then Claire's like, what can you do to Andrew? He's like, I can uh, tape your buns together. And then Bender. The instigator, of course. Even though they're kind of getting along, he still fucks with them. And he's like, I want to see what Claire can do. Mm-hmm. Claire's like, well, I can't do anything. And, you know, Bender's like, no, everyone can do something. She's like, well, there is, you know, one thing I can do. It's just, it's way too embarrassing. And Bender encourages her and she's like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. And so she takes lipstick and like puts it between her boobs and like goes, like puts her face down and like basically applies her lipstick without using a mirror or her hands. And like everyone else is kind of like, oh, that's so like, where'd you learn to do that? Like interested in everything. Yeah. Yeah. And Bender's like doing this slow clap. Like clapping. Mm -hmm. Even though he told her he wouldn't laugh. Like, he's just mock clapping. Yeah. And um, she's like, he's like, wow, my image of you is totally blown. And Allison defends her now. And she's like, you're shit. Don't do that to her. You swear to God you wouldn't laugh. And Bender's like, I'm not. Am I laughing? And Andrew's like, you're fucking prick. And they all kind of go off on him. And this is when Bender brings up those lines from previous. And he's like, what do you care what I think anyway? I don't even count, right? I could disappear forever and it wouldn't make any difference. I may as well not even exist at this school, remember? And you don't like me anyway, he says to Claire. And she starts talking about, you know, I have feelings and it hurts when someone steps on them. He's like, you're so pathetic. Don't you ever, ever compare yourself to me. You have everything and I got shit. You know, you're fucking Rapunzel. School would shut down if you didn't show up. Queenie is in here. And then he starts talking about her earrings. He's like, I like those earrings, Claire. And she's like, shut up. He's like, are those real diamonds, Claire? Shut up. He's like, did you work for the money for those earrings? And she starts getting more angry. Shut your mouth. Or did your daddy buy those? And then he goes, like, I bet that was a Christmas gift. You know, it was, you know what I got for Christmas this year? It was, it was a banner of fucking year at the old Bender family. Um, I got a carton of cigarettes. The old man grabbed me and said, hey, hey smoke up, Johnny. Johnny. He's like, so go home to your daddy and cry. Don't cry here, okay? And then everyone just kind of gets quiet. No one says anything. And then Claire has been crying. Um, and I'm actually surprised that Bender like didn't get up and leave the circle during this time because of his like kind of tantrum earlier. But then mm-hmm. Andrew's like, are we going to be like our parents? And Claire's like, no, not me. And then this is one of my favorite moments with Allison because she's like, I think it's like unavoidable when you grow up, your heart dies. And that is like just such an amazing line, but it's so sad at the same time. Like, I love mm-hmm. and hate that line. And then Bender's like, who cares? And Allison's like, I care. And she's about to cry. And this is one of the saddest parts to me because Brian's like, you know, what's going to happen, you know, to us? Like, I know this is weird timing, but I consider you guys my friends, you know, on Monday. What's going to happen? Um, and Andrew's kind of like, no, we're, we can still be friends. And Claire's like, you know, are we still friends? You mean like on Monday? And she's like, do you want the truth? And he's like, yeah. She's like, I don't think so. And Allison's kind of like, do you mean all of us or just John? She's like, with all of you. And Andy's like real nice attitude. And she's like, no, be honest. Like if Brian came up to you, you, yeah, you'd say hi. But you know, as soon as he left, you and the sports would like say messed up things about him as he walked away. And then Allison said, you know, like, what about me? And Claire's like, I, the same thing. And then Bender's pissed off and he's like, you are a 
bitch. And she's like, why? Because I'm telling the truth. That makes me a bitch. And Bender's like, that's so shitty. And Claire's like, what about you? Like, you're a hypocrite. You know, like, why don't you take Allison to one of your heavy metal vomit parties or take Brian out to go smoke during, you know, lunch? And he's like, or what about me? What if I come up to you and I said, hi, you'd probably all your friends would laugh their asses off. And as soon as I left, you would say that you were doing it with me. So they forgave you for being seen with me. And Bender's like, you don't know my friends. You don't talk to my friends. Like goes off on her. And then like this scene is just so intense for me. He like talks about her rich, poor, drunk mother in the Caribbean. And Claire's like sobbing, says she hates him. And then Brian finally breaks the silence. And I said, so I guess the weirdos are better than you guys and he looks at Allison and he's like would you do that to me and Allison's like I don't have any friends and Brian's like but if you did she's like I don't think the kind of friends I have would mind and Brian's like I wouldn't do that to any of you guys because that's really shitty and Claire talks about like how her friends like it's different because his friends look up to them and it's different from their social circles you know and Brian's like you're so conceited and he's like, why are you like that? And then she starts crying. This is the part that I really don't like, Claire. I don't like her part here because she's like, I don't try to be, but maybe it's because I don't relate to her. So I see the perspective from like Allison and them and Bender even. Like, why can't you think for yourself? Like, why do you have to do what all your friends say? And she's like, you know, it's just the kind of people, like it's so much pressure. And this is when Brian like loses it and says like, you don't think I understand pressure, Claire? Well, fuck you, fuck you. And he goes on to say like, you know, I brought a gun to school and Andrew's like why did you bring a gun and he's like I mean I just I couldn't I couldn't get an F I couldn't fail and he's like I didn't do it did I know and Allison's like was it a handgun he's like no it was a flare gun and it went off in my locker (laughs) and then they all kind of like it breaks that really heavy moment and they all kind of start laughing together and then Brian's like the fucking elephant was destroyed (laughs) and then they just all start laughing. And then Allison is the one who kind of like really breaks that really intense, you know, basically tension between all of them. She's like, you want to know what I did to get in here? Nothing. I didn't have anything better to do. And so then they all start laughing. And this is when we come to my song. And this is my last song. And it is an amazing, amazing dance montage. Um, we don't really see them get up or anything, but they we hear the music start playing for We Are Not Alone by Carla DeVito. Um, This song was released in 1985. This song was written specifically for the film. However, this is the only song that was not written or produced by Keith Forsey for the album or in the movie. Um, He approached her after hearing one of her albums and asked her to write a song based on the movie. Um, And part of there's not a whole lot of information about like where obviously she got the inspiration from the movie and the script. Um, But there's specific lyrics that I love so much for this part because after all of them realize like we all have shit going on we all have stress we all have pressure um the lyrics say we are not alone because when you cut down to the bone we're really not so different after all and it's 
such a beautiful but deep song and all of them are dancing and all of them are like getting along like they're doing their like choreographed dances and you know just like letting loose and being themselves and um it's just a great scene to see all of them you know happy again all of them back together um and it really is like one of the most pivotal dance 80 montage, if you will. Um, so just a little bit about Carla. She is an American actress and singer. Um, she did have a couple of like solo albums, but she's best known for being on um, kind of backup vocals for some of the rock bands, um, such as like Meatloaf. She's been in Broadway. She's done Blue Oyster Cult and Hall and Oates, as well as Rick Springfield. She's done backup vocals for them. Um, my favorite thing about her is she's actually married to Robbie Benson, who is the voice of Beast in Beauty and the Beast. And he actually helped her co-write the song, We Are Not Alone. So he does have um, some credits for that. But yeah, it's just, it's a great song and it's completely inspired by everything that Carla saw when she got to come in and watch the kids rehearse as well as read the script. Um, and it's just a, it's a great way for us to kind of see like, you know, all these kids have, they all come from different walks of life. They all have their own set of pressures, but at the end of it, they really are very similar in what they're going through. So just just a great ending for that whole really intense circle conversation, which I also want to throw in there was completely ad-libbed. Um, when John Hughes first wrote the script, he literally just put in there ad-lib and he told the kids to go for it. So everything here is very natural, very um, what they brought to the table from their characters. And when you think about the ages, especially of Molly and, you know, well, some of the other ones were older, but if you think they, they were 16, they really were 16. Um, some of them were 22, 23, but to be able to improv and ad lib that entire scene and to have so much emotion. And like Misa mentioned, it was completely filmed in one shot, except for the lipstick scene. Um, Molly really couldn't do that. So they had to like, yeah, they play with the angles because she couldn't actually put her lipstick on with her cleavage. Yeah. Which I've never tried it, but I don't imagine it'd be that easy. I don't think so. So, um, so yeah. And then after that amazing dance scene, Allison ends it by doing her dancing all the way down to the floor and like <laughs> throws herself on the floor. I have a clip for you. Um, one of my favorite shows, Community, parodied this dance montage. Oh. Um, there's a, I have it, I'll pop it on a blog, but it's like Jeff and Abed and they're like just going on an all night drink binge. And mm -hmm. so they play, we are not alone. And there's a part where they're like, they do the dancing on like on the barricade. Yeah. <laughs> I love and, it. Like the pizza guy comes and then he joins in. So it's, it's awesome. That is amazing. So then we see Bender crawling back through the heating duct and we see the rest of the four of them kind of sitting there and, you know, Claire gets Brian to um, write the paper for all of them. And this is when Claire, like, tells Allison, come on. And so she goes and, like, does her makeup. Yeah. Um, this part, uh, I feel like a lot of people have misinterpreted throughout the years. 
Um, I was seeing a lot of uh, a lot of interviews with like notable people who uh, who were kind of voicing their opinions on just what the Allison character did at the end of Breakfast Club. So yeah, we do see like um, Claire's just like, come on, and she's like, where are we going? She's like, just come on. And so like presumably they go off into one of those library rooms, and um, Claire's just kind of like he, she kind of cleaned up her eyes. Like Allison had a lot of black shit in her, like black eyeshadow and really thick eyeliner throughout the movie. And so Claire just kind of, you can tell Claire kind of cleaned her up and Claire's kind of giving her like a lot more of like a natural look, like um, neutral kind of tones, like maybe a little bit of blush, but she definitely does like her mascara and she's mm-hmm. like, she's using the fucking brow brush. I hope it's a different one, but whatever. <laughs> That's my thought too. I was like, Bender was just brushing his face with that. That is gross. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So then, um, so she's she's kind of cleaning her up a little, and um, this is uh, so. Uh, meanwhile, Brian is this is when Brian's like writing the letter, and then Allison even asks like, like Allison laughs and she's like, "Why are you being so nice to me?" And Claire's like, "Cause you're letting me," and that's literally all that was. Um, so what we end up seeing. Um, as far as Allison's storyline, um, Andy's kind of sitting on the barricade, and I guess they're just kind of waiting to leave. And that's when he looks up and he sees Allison. And she's wearing, like, I guess she's finally layered down to her, like, white dress layer. <laughs> there was, like, a white dress underneath all that. And, um, like, you can see her face. Her hair is combed back. She's got, like, a headband and, like, a bow in her hair that, like, Claire, Claire kind of touched her up a little. Um, and you can actually see her features and she looks really pretty. Um, she looks really cleaned up. She still looks like herself. She just kind of looks, um, not as dark, not as hidden. Yeah. If you will. Um, and so like Andy like walks up to her and Brian sees her and he smiles and then like she walks up to Andy. Um, there is some scene switching, but I'll just wrap this one up. Um, that's when Andy's like, uh, what happened? what happened to you? And she's like, why? Claire did it. Like she kind of gets, I don't need to laugh. It's so funny though how she says it. <laughs> kind of defensive. She's like, why? Claire did it. <laughs> she like looks away. Like, <laughs> and Andy's like, well, it's, it's, it's so different. And she's like, is that good or bad? And he's like, no, it's good. Like I can see your face. And, um, which is true, yeah. Like you can see her features, and Ali Sheedy is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Ali Sheedy is like the underrated beautiful. Like, of course, being in a fucking movie with Molly Ringwald, everyone's going to look at the redhead. But Ali Sheedy is underrated in every department, I think. Um, so of course, like she looks great, and and so I've I found in my research that like a lot of people felt like Allison sold out. They felt like it sent the message that she needed to change mm-hmm. uh, in order to end up with Andy and to really get his attention. And I don't get that feeling at all. Um, to me, it legit was Claire wanted to do something nice for Allison and Allison let her. That doesn't mean that on Monday morning, Allison is going to show up in white and like with her hair combed back with pristine makeup like Claire, like. That's not what that means. That's that's not how I see Monday going. Right. Uh, and so it, so I don't understand why, like, some people took it that way. Like, it was just something nice that she did for her, and that was it. Um, it was, it was uh, a moment that she was able to reach out and connect with Allison on a different level. 
um, you know, now that they had just kind of argued all of these feelings out and they had shown their true colors to each other and they realized that they're really kind of alike after all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm not sure what film those people are watching who think that she's just kind of like switched up who she is to end up with to the get boy. a guy. She had Andy's attention like before all that. Thank you. I was just going to piggyback and say that like they had an obvious connection even before this and he liked her and was attracted to her before then based on, you know, body language and the way he talked to her and the way he defended her in some of the situations, Um, you know, him going over and like having a one-on-one conversation with her. And like you said, just because, you know, Claire did her makeup this one time, like Andrew already knows what she looks like. Andrew already accepts her for that. Like, this is just a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and throughout the whole movie, like you said, there were little signs and nuances that Andy liked her. So, like, it really didn't matter throughout the movie what she looked like. He already liked her. But it just seemed like it was something that, like, these two girls could share. It was a sweet little moment that they had. Um, you know, they butted heads for a good chunk of the movie. So it was nice to see them have a one-on-one. They had these great moments in the group. But it was cool to see them kind of pull each other aside and just kind of have that for just the two of them. Right. I agree. I agree. I feel like they were making something out of nothing. But, you know, that's how people are. So, um, yeah, this is such a cute scene, though, because, like, Allison is obviously, like you said, like, uh, like standoffish, kind of like, you hate it. <laughs> when Andy's like, no, I like it. <laughs> yeah, Andy's. So sweet. Like Emilio Estevez is so cute. He's just so like, you can tell he's not like his character, at least he's not meant to be like a tough asshole athlete. Like he's sensitive. Yeah. And he actually has, he's actually really smart. Um, And so uh, it's, yeah, it's cute to have their, that's kind of their moment that they have before the end of the film. And then elsewhere, Claire sneaks out to see Bender. Which is like, it's such a a moment where you're kind of like, uh, finally, because you can see like they have a connection through like the little things that you said, like the nuances, the body language, like when she defends him for the screw and those kinds of things, like when she really gets to know him, the comfort level when they're going through the wallet and the purse, you know what I mean? Like, even though they were high, like it was, it was just a different connection that they had. And even though he was being an asshole to her, like, I feel that was kind of like a defense mechanism almost because like, I I do like this girl, but it's just going to be another person who doesn't think I'm good enough or who like shuts me out. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's just the way he handles things. And so Claire does sneak off and go into the room that he was locked into. And Bender's kind of jokingly like, you lost. And she goes over and like kisses his neck and he's like, what'd you do that for? And then they start talking about, um, you know how you said your parents, you know, just do things out of spite. Like wouldn't I be a great revenge tactic for that? And she says like, were you really disgusted by what I did earlier? And he shakes his head. Yes. But says no. While, you know, all these different little mini relationships are working out, Brian is sitting there writing this amazing paper and he, he like punches his arm, like, good job, job. buddy. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that part because it's so funny. (laughs) It's cute. So yeah, then they, um, they all walk out together and, you know, everyone smiles. Carl is cleaning and, you know, Bender's like, I'll see you next Saturday. And they uh walk- and right before they right before they walk out, like 
Carl says bye Brian and Brian actually acknowledges him this time. Yes. Kind of comes full circle because earlier he was embarrassed and then he was hurt by the notion that someone would do it to him. And then at the end, he's like, all right, he's like, yeah, bye, Carl. Like, yes. he's he's not ashamed of it anymore. Like, he wouldn't want someone to do it to him, so he doesn't do it to Carl in front of everybody. Well said. So they all walk out. Brian gets into his car, which uh, John Hughes plays his Director. dad. <laughs> the Hitchcock um, moment. <laughs> yes. We see Andrew and Allison kiss, um, and Allison rips off the patch of Andrew's jacket and then walks over to her car. Andrew's dad gets there and like he gets in and he kind of looks back at Allison. Like you come to detention, you leave the girl, <laughs> like a little bit of confusion. <laughs> um, we see Claire take out one of her diamond earrings and she puts it into Vendor's hand. Um, they kiss and she gets into the car. She leaves. We see him put the earring in his ear and we cut to Vernon reading the, um, final essay so basically he just fixes a little bit of what Misa was saying you know we have those simplest terms and most convenient definitions and at the beginning he did say you know like we were brainwashed um and so he signs them off and then this is the only time where he uses the name the breakfast club and that is what he has decided to name all of them because they are officially a club after spending so much time together um and vernon almost smiles after he reads this part um after he reads the paper that they wrote it's definitely not a thousand words like he requested but i think that he's overall happy with the fact that someone actually did it and i feel like after having talked to carl he's kind of you know like he's right and he kind of nods and lets it be. And then we see Bender walking out as the monologue continues. We hear their voices doing their part that they are, the athlete, uh, basket case, princess, criminal. Um, and then we see Bender walking across the football field. And he does the, you know, everyone knows from pop culture. He thrusts his fist into the air. And that is where we freeze, and that ends our amazing movie. And all of this is done with, of course, Simple Minds playing in the back. Like Misa said, we do get that mo uh, that song twice in the film. And just, it's an overall emotional amazing movie um just a little bit more information about simple minds like misa said the song was written by keith forsey and simple minds um they were approached actually keith approached lots of other people too like brian ferry billy idol who all passed on it um i've gotten some mixed information so i was going to ask you misa um when i was researching like who he specifically wrote it for or who he had in mind i read that he wanted billy idol and then billy idol recommended simple minds but then on some other things that i was reading like in um interviews with simple minds um they said that actually John and Keith were fans of Simple Minds and they had been following them from when they were like a smaller, you know, kind of playing in the local bar scene. And um, they loved using those UK sounds. And so they both went and approached them to get them to do the song after they were kind of turned down by some other people. Okay. So what I understood was, um, yeah, Keith was already a really big fan of Simple Minds. So when he wrote the song, he had it in mind for them to sing it. 
when he approached them about it, they declined because they they don't want to play a song that doesn't sound like themselves. They felt like if they didn't write it themselves, it wouldn't sound like them. So they weren't really interested. So they actually, from what I understand, they turned it down multiple times. Keith really wanted them to do it. That's when he ended up like asking other people in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them were the ones that you mentioned. Um, what was his name? Ferry? Yeah. Yeah. Fairy, oh, um, Brian Ferry, Brian Ferry, Billy Idol, um, yeah, Corey Hart, and yeah. Well, um, I heard that Corey Hart was suggested, mm, but okay. Forsey didn't agree with it. So I'm not even sure if they got as far as asking him. But gotcha. I mean, they were kind of based on who they asked. You could kind of tell around about what sound they were looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so eventually, what it came down to was like Forsey reached out. Um, to Simple Minds, he actually, I think he got in contact with, like, the lead singer's wife. Yeah. And he basically just emphasized, like, I really, really like them. I really, really want them to do this song. And they had already had some success in the UK, but they hadn't reached, like, any kind of pinnacle in the US yet. So at first, that was a reason, like, not to do it. They were just like, nah, whatever, this isn't going to be that song. But then they were like, okay, might as well give it a try. He likes us that much. And then it ended up being this, like, really big deal. Amazing. Uh, Chart topper. Yeah. So that's what I was able to find about it. And I know um, they put in the la, 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 la as a post holder. They didn't have any lyrics. lyrics, So they actually, you know, got to put in some words. Um, So, yeah. And this song – made huge success, made them very well known in the U.S., like you said, Um, actually made them a worldwide sensation. And that's when they were starting to play for larger crowds. Um, They played in like the JFK Stadium for Live Aid in July 1985, where they did perform this song in addition to Ghost Dancing and Promised You a Miracle. Um, This song has been used in several films, including American Pie, Along Came Polly, Easy A, Not Another Teen Movie, which is a parody of this movie, um, and also on some TV shows, Scrubs, Futurama, 30 Rock, um, like you said, Community, um, and they did like, there's been parodies of it as well. Um, there have been so many covers of this song, so many covers, like more than 100 So I'm going to just kind of go over some of the well-known because there are some people who I don't even know on here. (laughs) Um, And there are lots of different versions as well. Um, Newfound Glory did a cover. Uh, KT Tunsil, David Cook, uh, Molly Ringwald herself did a cover. Uh, Billy Idol actually, after turning it down, went and recorded it as well. Um, Who else do I have who's really notable? Anyone you want to mention? Rufio covered oh. it. I think it was one of the 80s goes punk or pop goes punk, one of those albums. Yes, definitely on there. Um, I mean, this song is just, it's its a pivotal song. Everyone knows it. Like, whether you listen to rap, rock, country, like, everyone knows this song. Yeah. Um, and then I also read that Smash Mouth did it and yes. King Fisher did it. Yes, I did have Smash. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. You are absolutely right. Yeah, um, the Glee cast also did it in one of their episodes. And then there are some instrumentals as well, like the piano guys who cover it also. Um, This song is just, it was another one of Keith's very famous hits. Um, And just so everyone knows, he is very well known for writing soundtrack movies. He did um, Footloose um, and Flashdance. 
also, and he actually has helped Billy Idol with some of his songs because he is a producer and a writer. So yeah, and that is all I have for Don't You Forget About Me. <laughs> and that concludes the movie. <gasps> oh, this movie. This movie. Such a good movie. I love this movie. I think it's just like, because I think everyone has had or has someone in their life, like even if they connected briefly or maybe over the course of like a day, like these guys did, or even if it was like a few weeks or months or even years, even though the relationship was brief and even though maybe it has, it was soured or maybe it didn't have all the best moments. Like I think everyone kind of has that, like, don't forget about me feeling when it comes to having a connection with someone. Um, you know, it was something that was meaningful at the time that shouldn't be for naught. And um, so that's, you know, and the fact that, like, we're not really sure what happens on Monday. Like, we're not really sure what's going to happen to these these five characters. Um, so the uncertainty is kind of sad, too. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bittersweet. Um, yeah. But I think that's a universal feeling. It's just like, well, no matter what from here, just, like, don't you forget about me. Right. And that was um, inspired. Keith took that from the conversation when Brian was asking about, you know, what's going to happen on Monday, like you said. And that's when he decided that that would be the song. And he had no idea it would get this big. Simple Minds had no idea it would get this big. But it's like, even to this day, still so well known. So do you have any fun facts you want to share? Should we go back and forth? Oh, my gosh. I have quite a few. So do I. (laughs) Um, well first I do want to say our honorable mention is Heart Too Hot to Hold which actually plays during the rest of the ending credits Yes, Um, that's by Jesse Johnson and it will be included on the playlist Um, I have quite a few so I I don't want to read them all and then realize that I took half of yours or something so you want to go back and forth we can do that okay sounds good Okay, uh, you go first, I guess. Okay, so um, just some of the, I, you know, Misa and I like to cover some of the other people who were supposed to or possibly were going to be casted in the movie. Um, John Cusack was actually originally cast as John Bender, but John Hughes decided to replace him with Jed Nelson. Nicolas Cage was considered at time for John Bender, but they could not afford his salary at the time, which I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I like Judd. Yeah, no, it's it's really, of course, like I said, it's easy to say now we can't see anyone else playing it, but it would be interesting if we had to look back now and like 36 years ago, it was like Nicolas Cage yeah. in detention. Um, speaking of cast changes, Rick Moranis was originally the janitor, but he came in and did it like a Russian. Yeah. And they really didn't like it. They felt like it was, it. I don't know, it just didn't mesh well. So John had to tell John didn't fire him himself. John had to tell one of his like crew, like, "Hey, you have to tell him he's fired." So that must have been an interesting conversation because, of course, Rick Moranis had stature at that point. I mm-hmm. think he was he was kind of getting up there. Um, so, and I mean, looking back again, like knowing what I know now, because obviously, like growing up, I I knew about Honey, I Shrunk the Kids before I knew about Breakfast Club. So for me, it just would have been like, oh, the dad from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is in this movie. Like, I feel like it would have taken away from everything else. I like that it was someone like John Capellos. 
um, you know, someone who we've seen in a Hughes movie before at that point. Yes. Um, so, but yeah, Rick Moranis, that would have been weird. It a lot of have. things in this movie that almost happened would have just been weird to me, I think. Right. Yeah. I like it the way it is. Like, I don't want any other changes. Another one, um, Jim Carrey auditioned for the role of John Bender, uh, which, I mean, I've seen him in a couple serious roles, uh, but... And I mean, this was before he really blew up, but um, I just, I can't imagine Jim as Bender, you know, like those really angry scenes. He doesn't have the dangerous. Mm -mm. Not at all. Especially not back then. Especially not back then. (laughs) Agreed. Um, Ali Sheedy said that of all the things in the whole movie, of every single line, every single like reaction moment, like camera angle, she said of all the things in the movie she is most proud of introducing John Hughes to the David Bowie quote in the beginning. She did a lot, like I said, in this movie. Like, I was very um, impressed with her that she did all of that. Like, just – and that John took her ideas and was like, yeah, like, those are great. Um, One thing that I really liked when I was doing the research is uh, John Capello said that one time during filming, like, when Bender asked, like, how does one become a janitor? His backstory, he said, was, really, you want to know? You have to have your heart broken by your teenage sweetheart in your third year of university when you're doing a great football scholarship. Drop out, lose her heart, lose her affection, make sure her father hates you even more, and you will never be included in the future plans, even if you try to make it up to her. And then you get a job at your old high school as a janitor, and you try to lick your wounds. That's how you become a janitor. That's Carl's pathetic backstory. And it's so sad (laughs) because it's so real. Like like that, that really happens. That really happens to people. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, he said that during one of the takes and they, you know, like cut. But, I mean, when he explained that to everyone um, in the interview that I was reading, like, everyone was just kind of like, wow, that was heavy. <laughs> so, it was. Another thing I heard was, um, so behind the scenes, like, when they weren't shooting, um, they kind of felt like they were back in high school anyway because, like, they would eat in the cafeteria and everyone would just kind of sit with their groups at, like, the cafeteria tables and shit. And because Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall were still technically teenagers, or, like, kids, I guess, um, they actually had to, like, go to lessons for, like, three hours a day. So there were a lot of moments in the movie where, like, John is talking to her stand-in, and Judd Nelson admitted, like, he's like, who is this person? You're not Molly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that, that really, that's another thing that made me pay attention is, like, all the moments where, like, Bender and Claire are in the same frame, but not really. Like, which one's really Molly? And which yeah. Because Molly, you know, and at the same time, I think because of their age, they're restricted to how long they could even be on set. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, hence the stand-ins. Um, so kind of changes your perspective a little on some of those scenes but yeah interesting to uh literally be back in high school yeah definitely um this movie is actually ranked number one by entertainment weekly's 50 best high school movies of all time uh which of course and john hughes has like three of those on there so because you know he did such a great job of capturing those high school movies um, during the scene before they go to lunch, uh, that's when they're whistling that tune. Um, so the, 
what they're whistling is the tune from a movie called The Bridge Over River Kwai, which is from 1957. Um, and it's actually a film about allied POWs, which is pretty symbolic, I think. Wow. Um, so, and that's right before Vernon comes in and he's like, all right, that's 30 minutes to lunch. And he's, again, trying to be the authority figure. And they're kind of like back to fucking with him together. Um, so I thought that was a nice touch. Of, like of all things, they could be whistling. And that's what they whistle together, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, I thought that was a good little, um, detail. (laughs) Yes. Emilio Judd and Allie were older than Anthony and Molly. Um, and they actually went on to play college graduates in St. Elmo's Fire. St. Elmo's Fire! (laughs) And that was also filmed in 1985. And John Hughes is actually the reason they all three got those roles because he recommended them so highly based on their acting. Part of the reason why I love St. Elmo's Fire is because I I love Judd and Allie together mm-hmm. as a couple. Even though he's like he cheats on her throughout the entire film. But they're so cute together. Like I love when they're dancing on the banister together in this movie. And so speaking of the three of them, um, so yeah, so they were older and then I'm sure you found this one out too, like how Judd and Emilio tried to go into a high school Mm -hmm. to see if they could pass as high school students. And like Emilio was recognized within 20 minutes because he had already kind of been in a notable role at that point. Um, And then I, did you, do you know what happened to Judd? Judd, did Judd ever blend in or did he get figured out too? Um, I got that he got in trouble. As a student? Yeah. That's hilarious. Um, and then on another occasion, too, because he would stay in character, like he went to the laundromat or to like diners in character. He got lots of looks, like lots of calls, like he looked, you know, shady and like he was up to something. Um, and so he he got into trouble, you know, being a method actor and staying in character. So that's what I found out. Yeah. Anything else? There's only one other thing, I guess, that was like really interesting to me. Um and that was that uh, another thing about Judd that because he was such in character, there were moments where like he was acting off camera, but it was rude to Molly. Um, and so like he actually almost lost his job um, as the character of Bender because just of his method acting and Vernon um, or Paul Gleason, who played Vernon actually went to bat for him. It was like, he's just acting. He's just staying in character. Like he's, He's so good. He's just continuing to be Bender, even off camera. Um, And so John had to like talk to him about how to interact with Molly. And I think that might just have been also that age difference. Like maybe she wasn't as aware of, you know, the method acting. But on top of that, she was kind of John Hughes' sweetheart at that point. Pretty much. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure he he could have lost his job pretty quickly had. Yeah. I think um, because, yeah, he he stayed in character throughout the whole thing but I think what it came down to was um he made fun of Molly's father's blindness yeah and that's when John Hughes was like he was about to fire him and I had heard rumors that he almost he almost lost his job on the movie set but I never actually found out why so that's what I heard about um so yeah he just like he got really personal about Molly's family and John didn't like that but Molly even Molly wasn't even really that like upset about it because she knew what he was doing um but man like if you imagine like having to work with someone like that like just someone who's always on no uh uh-huh. like it would get a little nerve-wracking I think yeah 
much. Oh, um, so at the beginning part where, like, Jed Nelson, like, hawks the loogie and catches it in his mouth. Like, he did that just on a random whim. And John Hughes is like, can you do that again? And Judd's like, all day long. <laughs> and, and so John Hughes is like, okay, keep it. But the reason he kept it, he's like, I want you to do it again because Molly was so grossed out by it. <laughs> and you see it in the movie because she's like, oh, my God. It's not, it's not pretty. Um, and so that part always kind of grosses me out, too, because you hear him catch it. It's like. <laughs> yeah, that's disgusting. <laughs> and so then actually uh, recently, um, one of the channels that I love to watch is like the Reels channel. It's, it's got a lot of like true crime stuff and documentary style stuff. And they did a Breakfast Club Behind Closed Doors episode. Oh. So there and took notes. <laughs> Um, and I pulled a quote from John Hughes because I had a lot of archive footage of John Hughes. And one of the things he said that I really liked was he said, character comes first because I think people are more interesting than plot. And I think that's a real testament to something like The Breakfast Club, which, you know, technically all takes place in one room for the most part. You know, there's no costume changers. There's really no time lapse over eight hours long. You know, like it, it's all very... Um, it's all very in one place. You kind of don't even mind that it's like a bottle episode, if you will. Yeah. Um, the characters are so good. Like it's so rich in character that you don't need, you know, flashy car scenes and like city skylines and shit like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Judd Nelson said that this was the first script he ever read where the teenagers actually sounded like people. Um, John Hughes, of course, had a background in advertising and he was a freelance contributor to National Lampoon, which is why the vacation and some of the other movies have, National Lampoon over the title. Um, this uh, movie was originally known as Detention or The oh. Lunch Bunch, which it, it was called The Lunch Bunch. Yeah, The Lunch Bunch. Uh, there's another one with library in it, right? I forget. The Library Pact or something like that? I didn't. Oh, I didn't find that one. Um, I, it sounds about right, though. Yeah, there was another one uh, with that in there. So, yeah, definitely Breakfast Club sounds better, though. <laughs> Uh, Virginia Madsen is another one who was considered, I think, for Claire, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the movie was shot in Chicago because Joan wanted to work from home. And, like, at first, like, this really wasn't really heard of. Like, the producers are used to, you know, having sets built at Universal or at some kind of studio lot. But they they kind of knew that John was more comfortable in Chicago. They knew he wanted to be kind of close to home. Um, and so they trusted him to go ahead and film in Chicago in an actual school uh, library, of course, was not a real library, but a gym that the amazing set designer Jennifer Pulido and her team created uh, from the ground up. Um, and then they also had to make changes to the set based on parts of the script that were being kept like um, they wanted Molly dancing on those stairs. So they made the stairs look a particular way so that that scene would work. Um, the statue was meant to kind of be like, not necessarily the pivotal image, but like whenever you see the statue and whenever you see the characters, you can kind of tell in accordance to the statue where they are in the library. Um, the Chicago Public Library donated 10,000 books for the movie. And um, Jennifer Polito was so like very detailed about it uh, as far as like she even had them put the books in order because she knew that if a librarian was watching the movie closely they'd be able to see inaccuracies um so it really was very much like a real library and had real books inside um and uh because there was also a bunch of just like lighting and video equipment the room would get anywhere between 95 to 110 degrees (laughs) 
Um, and it would get so hot that the actors sometimes fell asleep. <laughs> um, so it was, and you know, they're all in the room with the crew. John Hughes was always very close by. Like there were moments where he had to be told to move out of the frame because he was so close to the actors that he was sneaking into the frame. Fucking, and of course, like, I thought this was kind of true to Claire. Uh, when Molly was casted as Claire, um, she did not like her wardrobe. She had like a crocheted skirt. She had like a beret. She she did not like the costumes at all. And this was like a day or two before they started shooting. So John Hughes personally took her shopping and she picked out her own clothes for Claire, which <laughs> sounds kind of fun, actually. Like she literally could have bought anything. Um, right after the ending, right after Judd, like, did the fist in the air, like, he did the ending walk a few times, and every time he did the football field ending, he did it differently, so he did the fist in the air, and so then, um, after he walked away and out of frame, the camera stayed rolling, and about 30 of the crew ran onto the football field and mooned the camera, and that footage is sitting somewhere in Universal Studios. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Isn't that? Oh, and I this is probably my favorite fact of all. The iconic fucking poster was photographed by none other than Annie Leibovitz. Yes. Yes. That is an amazing fact. Yes. Okay. That's now I'm good. That was awesome. So, yes. There's so many facts about this movie, guys. Like Misa and I could probably go on and on forever. We'd both tried to find just the most amazing or most, you know, random ones that we could. Um, I did go ahead and find like there's been a lot of references because like we said, Breakfast Club is just one of those pivotal pop culture movies that everyone knows um, and respects. And there are a lot of TV shows that have done parodies of it. Um, one includes X-Play, Family Guy, victorious which i watched because my daughter watches that show and it's it's really fun to see how they do the breakfast club because obviously it's not you know a tv or nickelodeon type show um and this is probably the closest one that i've seen where they stuck to a lot of the script um and instead of there being weed, they were talking about tacos. And instead of talking about, you know, the virginities, they were talking about being vegans. Um, so they they were creative with it. And they kept the dance parody. They kept the hallway running. They all sang the song together. Um, they even have um, the kind of nerd guy. He says, you're so conceited, like three times, like making fun of it. Uh, it's, it's really funny. Um, American Dad has parodied the Goldbergs, Futurama, Bob's Burgers, How I Met Your Mother, and I'm sure there are plenty more others, but those were the most notable ones that I found. So, one of my favorite Bob's Burger, like probably my favorite Bob's Burger episode is like, um, like Linda finds an old picture of Bob and he's like wearing like plaid with a jean jacket and like cute little, like he's Jean's age. And Gene, Gene like looks at the photo and he thinks it's himself. And he's like, I forgot I went through a Judd Nelson phase. And she's like, that's your father. <laughs> and then later in the episode, he like shaves his head to look like Bob. It's hilarious. But I've always loved that part. And then, yeah, like I know you mentioned Community. The very first episode of Community, this like Bender is like quoted word for word. Like Abed just was like, oh, you, it was a band of fucking year at the old Bender family. My, my dad gave me a carton of cigarettes and he does the whole like smoke up Johnny and everyone's just like because that's Abed's character like he's constantly referring to movies and quoting them and shit like he's 
he's basically me. Um, <laughs> and so it's it's so funny. Like I I want to find all the clips. I'm gonna try to find as many parodies as I can. Um, but yeah, I, I, pretty much anyone who parodies Breakfast Club is a win. Definitely. And I love how they recreated it in Not Another Teen Movie with Paul Gleason. That was fucking hilarious. (laughs) I love that movie. That's probably one of my favorite, like, uh, spoofs of a movie. Um, I mean, they did such a good job. And, yes, there are other teen movies that are incorporated into that, but it is heavily um, Breakfast Club. So, Mm -hmm. love it. And then on top of the parodies of the movie itself, there have been so many parodies of the movie poster. Like um, Ready Player One has parodied it, mm. Spider-Man Homecoming, Wonder Woman 1984, evidently, which I needed to look up, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, the comic book, um, Power Rangers, and I know for sure Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think it's like part two or part three. They do like the Breakfast Club pose. That's so, so. cute try to find some of those um quote-unquote knockoffs for the blog um what do you think happened on monday um honestly i think allison went back to dressing the way she was but her and andy are still together and i kind of think that andy might have after talking like apologized to larry or found a way to apologize to larry um i would like to think that maybe bender helped brian fix his lamp to help him bring his grade up um and maybe brought Brian to go smoke with him more because they seem to have such a fun time doing that um and I definitely think Claire being with Bender would have kind of started to make that shift you know in how we don't have to stick to just our one group click okay branch out Honestly, this movie made me kind of grateful that, like, it, the click situation really wasn't a big thing when I went to high school. Not in my high school, I don't think. Like, yes, I was a theater geek, um, but I mean, like, I, I talked to everyone. Yeah, like, I talked to everyone. Like, nobody, nobody excluded me for being a theater geek. Um, and I, I had friends, like there, there was such a mix of people in theater. You get athletes, you get speech and debate kids, you get kids who literally have nothing better to do. Um, and so it's like, I, you know, I'm, that's part of the reason why it's, I guess it's hard for me to say I could relate to one or the other. Cause mm-hmm. I, I guess in some ways, yeah. But as far as like the clicks and like the social circle things go, um, kind of grateful that I never really met much scrutiny as far as that goes. Everyone was just kind of cool. The only time I ever felt like that clicks were really big was actually in middle school. And that was more from like the cheerleaders. But you know who were on our cheerleaders back then. So Alicia Becerra. (laughs) Do I have to cut that out? (laughs) No, you don't have to. (laughs) Okay, cool. All right. Um, So yeah, I think that wraps it up. Is there anything else you want to add? Um, this movie is life-changing. It is on the list of movies you should see before you die. It is, um, you know, they've gotten the silver, uh, award for like recognition because it's such an amazing movie. Yes, um, the MTV Awards. Yes. Where they all came back together, where Yellow Card played the song and it was just yeah. amazing. And um, they were like, oh, Emilio is in Africa with Dave Chappelle. Some <laughs> shit like yes, that. Yes, exactly. Um, And guys, if you've seen this movie once, like, I highly recommend you watch it again. 
um, it is one of those just classic movies. Like I can put it on and just like do something else. And of course I'm still quoting it because I know every line in this movie, but you know, it's just, it's such a good movie to hear and watch and like watch it through different lenses. Like Misa and I have said over and over again. Um, and you know, depending on where you are in your life, I would say, just think about how your interaction affects other people and how you can be positive for someone or you can choose to be negative like Vernon and his really negative states and how everyone is going through shit. So that's my final thing on Breakfast Club. It's an amazing movie and it it definitely goes beyond just school. It's odd that I know people who cannot rewatch movies. Like they watch a movie once and they just never want to pick it up again because they know how it ends. So what's the point? And I can't, even those people, if those people cannot rewatch Breakfast Club, then they should definitely be skyrocketed into another planet because <laughs> Breakfast Club is just so rewatchable. You know, you can introduce it to a, one new person every day and that and every person will have a different reason to love it and a different reason to relate to it. It's that good. Yes, and I cannot wait to watch it with my children. So I haven't let Dagan watch it just yet, um, but definitely soon. I feel like before he goes to high school, so probably next year. Taryn has, of course, already been asking, like, when can I watch it? When can I watch it? And I'm like, it's not yet. You have to wait. I feel like it's almost like a rite of passage. Like, we're going to watch it together and we're going to talk about it before you enter high school. I mean, like I said, I know that that's, you know, there are stressors and things that happen at an earlier age now. Um, but just some of the heaviness, I feel like that's part of the reason why I wanted them to wait. But I mean, it's just like, I'm excited to pass that down to them. You know what I mean? Because it's such a beloved movie to me and to the world. So we hope that you've made it this far with us. <laughs> I'm sure you're tired of our voices, but hey, we had to make up for like a whole month of not recording. That and this is a fucking banger of a movie. Like we cannot leave any line unspoken or any scene unspoken of. Like it's it's all so pivotal. It it all really adds up to a a really beautiful ending and a really beautiful message. Um and I think ironically, like even though we had this planned from the get-go, the message is it's still, um, <clears throat> it kind of resonates with what's going on in the world right now. Definitely. Well said. So anyway, guys, please take care of each other and uh, support your local businesses, your small businesses. Um, thank your truck drivers and your medical field people and uh, everyone else who is still helping make the world go round when a time when it just wants to kind of freeze frame. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Um, so guys, look for us. Remember, don't forget to follow the blog that Misa's going to put together with all of these amazing things. Um, this will, of course, go up on the day that they were in detention. Uh, so look for that. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. If you're not already, you can check us out on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, Not Title iTunes, iTunes, everything else. Um, I'd be yeah, pretty much everything besides title. Okay, no title. <laughs> right. We appreciate you indulging in our weirdness and um, listening to us cut through every little bit of this movie inside and out. Um, we hope uh, we hope we've introduced you to some really cool, new, fun things about the movie. We hope we've rejuvenated your love for this movie, or if you've never seen it, where I'm have you sure been? <laughs> But we hope we have encouraged you to go check it out. 
And uh, thank you guys again. We know our sound might be different this time just because we are playing around with the remote recording due to coronavirus. We really appreciate you guys still hanging in with us even throughout all this craziness. Uh, we're going to continue to record this way until we get the okay to be reunited. Yes. I and Trust me, guys. Like I said, like I really was tempted to leave the house and go ahead and risk it. But then I'm like... I'm immunocompromised. I'd be setting a really bad example. And I would, I've been grilling people all week about like leaving the house and like taking it lightly. And then I'm like, how could I possibly do the same? So it was a necessary evil, but I figure it's better to do it remote than not at all. And we definitely didn't want to miss March 24th. Seriously, watch this movie over and over and over and over again. <laughs> yes, guys, please. Um, and jam that soundtrack. It's amazing. Top to bottom. Um, and when you grow up, don't let your heart die. What a great way to end it. All right, guys, we really appreciate you. Have a great week. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms and in the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain and an athlete and a basket case, a princess and a criminal. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. <laughs>